Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. Today we are going to be discussing something that actually we've been itching to talk about for weeks, but we felt it inappropriate to, uh, to really get into the topic because we hadn't actually finished watching the whole series of Game of Thrones. And uh, we were averaging two to three episodes a day um, in order to to get through the material. <clears throat> and it's a good thing that we waited until now. It's a good thing that we waited until the end of the series because uh, a great deal of changes or some, let's say, some potentially controversial aspects of the series manifested in season seven and season eight certainly if the fans of the series the fans of game of thrones and the fans of the uh song of ice and fire uh literary series by george R. R. martin upon which the game of thrones is based uh if those fans are to believed uh, to be believed then the show creators the showrunners <clears throat> Benioff and Weiss, they completely dropped the ball and they completely sabotaged, if not destroyed, the whole franchise. Um, but that's of the opinion of a certain subset of fans who became heavily identified, heavily attached, heavily invested into the series. And, uh, and then in the seventh and eighth uh, season, they felt that the, the series just took a nosedive. There are a number of reasons why they, they have this opinion, and we may touch on them here and there. We just thought, thought we would get the, uh, the controversy, if that's the right word, out of the way right off the bat, because as usual, that's not going to be our focus in, uh, exactly. Um, what most fans tend to focus on are their attachments and their identifications and how their expectations were dashed. Most outrage, not all, not all, but most outrage is based on very superficial uh, aspects. Or they are founded, they are anchored in much deeper, much more profound, esoteric reasons. But that intuitive knowing that something has gone awry, that gets filtered by the subjective ego mind. And the subjective ego mind 
comes up with the rationale to justify that intuitive knowing that something's gone awry, that something's not right, that they dropped the ball, that something is, you know. So this happens a lot in fandom and in these so-called culture wars, where this is especially true for uh, franchises such as Star Wars and the, uh, the Disney sequel trilogy or Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard and a number of other uh, these so-called franchises, these so-called beloved franchises that uh, get under the control of the uh, postmodernists and they start injecting their intersectionality, their intersexual, uh, intersexual, um, intersectional, would help if we could speak today, their intersectional politics and diversity quotas, et cetera, et cetera. And this becomes a, a bugaboo for the fans who believe that the intersectional social justice warriors and postmodernists are out to just destroy everything. And, um, and so that's a whole other area of conversation, the topic of conversation. And they believe that this is something like this took place in the seventh and eighth season of Game of Thrones. But let's get all that politics and everything out, out of the way and, and, and put it aside. Let's put it on the back burner. Because admittedly, when we first approached Game of Thrones, that was what? Seven or eight years ago? Maybe more than that. Ten years ago now. And we watched the first few episodes. I think we got halfway through the first or halfway through the second episode, can't remember. And we just turned it off. And we turned it off because <clears throat> our immediate first impression of the series was that it was a soft porn reimagining of Dynasty. And if you don't know what Dynasty was, Dynasty was this uh, soap opera from the 1980s starring Joan Collins. And it was... It was uh, another network's version of Dallas. You might be more familiar with Dallas, the one with uh, um, about uh, J.R. Ewing, you know, and they had the whole the whole uh, thing about who shot J.R. and it was a big thing in the tabloids and everything else. It's a big murder mystery that one season when who shot J.R. Well, Dynasty was another network's. I can't remember which network, but another network's version of Dallas. But whereas Dallas had a patriarchy and J.R. Ewing was the big bad who's controlling everything in dynasty um the the so-called evil character the villainous character was played by Joan Collins and her name was Alexis and she she's played this absolutely devilishly fiendish uh matriarch who is out to of course control the the whole oil business in the United States but mostly around Texas in that area, <clears throat> just like Dallas. And it became very clear that uh, on that level, why so many people were hooked on this show 
was that it had that level of soap opera-ishness to it. <laughs> but it was set in a dark fantasy universe. So that was new. That was different. And it was, of course, the production values were incredibly good. The actors were excellent, like the whole cast. Um, and yet, back then, 10 years ago, our reaction was, oh, we don't need to watch this. We've already seen this. Because we used to watch Dynasty with our mother <laughs> back in the 80s. Because it was our mother's favorite show. So we used to watch Dynasty with our mom. So when we were watching, when we began watching Game of Thrones and all that soap opera side and the, the struggle for the Iron Throne and everything else, and this whole thing was like, ah, you know what? We've been here. We've done that. <laughs> and, of course, the soft porn aspect of it didn't appeal to us. Um, it was, we were, 10 years ago, we were in a very different place. And, um, and to say that we were struggle, struggling to control our lust, it would be an understatement right to be you know we were we were dealing with that um as many many uh do who are on the path and uh this show was obviously not shy about its nature as adult entertainment and so we we're like you know uh, do we really you know dark fantasy aside do we really want to be you know getting ourselves hooked on this on this um essentially soap opera uh with with these adult elements and our answer back then was no but the reason why the answer was no back then was because obviously clearly we were in a very different place also consciously we we couldn't see past that surface level that surface level was so in your face and it was in our face and we judged it very quickly on a very superficial level and perhaps we shouldn't have but in the end it was for the best because now today 10 years later we have a very different view a very different perspective and we work with a very different set of faculties when we observe anything we no longer observe with uh, let's say you know mortal eyes and the judgmental ego mind so these filters are they're still present but they're far less domineering and dominant over our, quote, opinions of things. And as a result, we were able to revisit Game of Thrones with much greater clarity. And we were able to see past those are the surface level foibles and not only see past them, but actually enjoy them. It's an incredibly entertaining show. The soap opera-ishness of it is superlative. It's outstanding. It's far better than anything that was being written uh, that 40 years ago. So it was thoroughly entertaining as well. And of course, we could look the other way when it came to other aspects of it. And we've come a long way now, so we're able to transform impressions of uh, various uh, different kinds, which in the past we would just avoid altogether because we were unable to transform them back then. But we're able to transform them now. So we no longer have to avoid impressions like we used to. 
And as a result of this approach with a, a new set of faculties and a new uh, sense of vision, uh, the nature of this song of ice and fire, which is the title of this book series that George R. R. Martin uh, wrote, but is supposedly still in the process of writing, i.e. finishing. <coughs> According to a good friend of ours, there's two books left in the series that he has yet to write. One's called Winds of Winter, and the other one, I don't know what it's called, but The Song of Ice and Fire is a modern day mythology on par with Tolkien. To say it's on par with Tolkien is a very bold, brash statement and perhaps is giving way too much credit to George R. R. Martin. On the other hand, um, it is the mythology that was needed for the time that we're in. Even the Lord of the Rings, I mean, when it was written, and then when the films were made, it didn't have the, uh, shall we say, the impact that perhaps uh, it was hoped that it would it would have. Game of Thrones had that impact. And not only did it have that impact, it, it made bold decisions and went in bold directions that even the Lord of the Rings, the filmmakers of Lord of the Rings, dared not go. And, uh, and we'll get into that when we discuss the macrocosmic elements of Game of Thrones. So the allegory as, a, as a, an allegory of this humanity and macrocosm. But the most obvious allegory and symbolic esoteric significance of the Game of Thrones is its relationship to the human psyche in microcosm. Westeros is as the, the continent, the land, the seven kingdoms. The seven kingdoms of Westeros represent the human being, the human machine, the human psyche. Why seven? Well, we can obviously begin with the seven chakras. We can also talk about the seven heavens, right? The seven dimensions on the tree of life. When it comes to seven, we can talk about the seven organ systems and seven, uh, because the law of seven is the organizational law of the universe. But seven is also significant because of the Game of Thrones itself. There are these seven houses. There are more houses there's a legion of houses. It seems like every episode, every season, more houses appeared, more, more factions appeared. But there are seven dominant houses. And those seven dominant houses or, or clusters of houses that rule the seven kingdoms or 
oversee the seven kingdoms. Those seven houses can be likened to the seven deadly sins. Those are our egos. But those seven deadly sins are only representative of a legion of egos in the same way that the seven houses in Game of Thrones are representative of factions of houses. And of course, each house has many different players that are playing out their own dramas in those houses. And it's uh, Daenerys Targaryen or Daenerys Stormborn who says um, it's this wheel, this game. It's, it's, it's a wheel. First, it's these people are on top and then those people are on top. And uh, we actually have the, uh, the quote. Where is it? We can bring it up. There we go. They're all just spokes on a wheel. This one's on top, then that's that one's on top, and on and on it spins, crushing those on the ground. That's a quote by Daenerys uh, Stormborn or Daenerys Targaryen. She is known as the mother of dragons, and she has come to to, to break the wheel. I didn't come to stop the wheel. I came here to break the wheel. That's what she says. And um, this is actually a slide of our from our upcoming video um, where we demonstrate how the wheel, the Game of Thrones, um, how this represents the quote that we just saw there um, and how what we're seeing are the different houses representing the different egos. And the Game of Thrones, that the Iron Throne is the eye at the top. And those that are getting crushed by the wheel are represented by the Hanged Man, which is the uh, sigil of House Bolton. Or sorry, not the Hanged, the Hanged Man, the Flayed Man, but he's flayed upside down. So he's like, he's, he's crucified upside down and he's flayed, the flesh stripped from him. That's the, the symbol in the, the series, the sigil that represents those who are being crushed by the wheel and um and this we're just you know the, the the process by which this happens this is all going to be um in our uh in our video that we're working on on the human condition um but this this wheel spinning round and around and around and this flayed man this hanged man uh that creates this pendulum the uh, the pendulum between good and evil, you know, us and them, pleasure and pain. This is the hypnotic pendulum that creates hypnosis and ignorance. Um, and if all of that looks like a terrible cacophony, <laughs> right, a visual uh, uh, spaghetti in motion, that's because your busy, crazy mind is because of this. This is what's going on. This is the ego mind. This is the engine behind the ego mind. So if you ever wondered why you have a busy mind, it's because of this. Does this look like it's going to shut up on, uh, on its own accord? Does the Game of Thrones end on its own accord? 
There's always new factions. There's always new heirs. There's always new things clamoring for that Iron Throne. And that's why the Iron Throne is made up of... Um, that's why the Iron Throne is made up of all of those swords, all those weapons that have been um, melted together, uh, forged together. All those weapons of the fallen, of those the fallen who have tried to rise to the throne and been defeated, and but it's it's a there's a legion of weapons in that throne, and the, every single weapon in the Iron Throne represents one thing that's represented here in the top of the circle, and that is blind self-interest, right? It's the eye, but it's the eye that's blinded to all but what it wants, what it identifies with, what it is attached to. And in Game of Thrones, how many characters are blinded to everything but their own desires? Isn't that by definition what a soap opera is? Um, and we get into, you know, implosion and explosion and temptation and leading to suffering and not being. And um, so I, I won't uh, I won't continue anymore, like getting into the the, um, the specifics. But here's the busyness of the mind. And how this downward spiral of explosion and implosion um, this is the single pillar of ego, of not being, which this is what separates Gollum and Smeagol, right? This is the divide and conquer of the individual and that which is precious to us. But it's also divide and conquer on the macrocosmic scale. So we have tribalism and nationalism, corruptness and uh, corruption and wokeness, the radical left. So you have blind faith and blind dogma. What happens in Microcosm happens in macrocosm. So the explosion of fear leads to an implosion of society, economy, and civil liberty. We all saw that in the last few years with the coof. And that's all that's all this is. That's that's this that's playing out on the macrocosmic scale, but it's playing out in the microcosm of each and every person who suffers from it. So this then is the eye of Sauron. And it is the one ring. This is the ring of power. It's the same wheel. It's the wheel that Daenerys Targaryen speaks of. And this is the connection. That this is the only reason why I wanted to show you this sequence from our video. Is because to make the connection between uh, the Game of Thrones, the, the, the wheel... Of all the factions vying, this one's on top, then that one's on top. That is a, a very accurate representation of the actual metaphysical mechanics that is going on in our psychology. That it is a game of thrones. That is what's going on inside here. And how that relates to Lord of the Rings that which is precious to us and it is a ring it is that ring that corrupts the hearts of men that drives men mad and it is that ring which is the the eye of sauron now the eye in relation to the top of the tower 
that sees all, but, the, but it's blinded to all but its own desires. What it is looking for more than anything is the ring of power. That's what the great eye is searching for more than anything. It's the ring, that which is precious to him. And so there is a direct congruency between the ring of power and the game of thrones. It's just sort of flipped in that you have the many peoples of Middle Earth fighting against the one Dark Lord, whereas in Game of Thrones, you have all of these different factions fighting for the for the one thing, the, 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 the throne, which is the top of the pyramid. But the two things are the same symbol. They're just being represented in very different ways. And with the one ring and the, uh, the characters of Frodo and Sam and Gollum and Smeagol, we have the opportunity to see the individual microcosmic struggle with desire and the journey to destroy uh, the ring of power. In Game of Thrones, we have the wheel that Daenerys says she's going to break. She's going to break this cycle, this, this, this nonstop game of King of the Hill with all these houses vying for, for control of the Iron Throne. And the Iron Throne is significant because we live in the Iron Age of this humanity. So it's not by accident that in Game of Thrones it's called the Iron Throne. Let us not forget that Lord of the Rings was written in, was being written during the Second World War, was published uh, in the 60s, if we have that correct, but certainly in the 50s and 60s, post-war, post-Second World War, Lord of the Rings was published originally. And, and A Song of Ice and Fire uh, would have been published, the first book would have been published as early as the 80s, possibly. We don't know the exact dates. But so it's possibly 80s, 90s, 2000s, but we don't know that for certain. But clearly it was uh, only put to film in the uh, in the 2000s. And even though Lord of the Rings was put to film, uh, what, a decade before Game of Thrones, uh, that couldn't encapsulate the whole of the, uh, the mythos. Rings of Power is trying to expand on that ethos, uh, that mythos, but we'll see how uh, well they do. They just they just wrapped up the first season. But this, what Game of Thrones did or does, is demonstrate and express in microcosm the 
metaphysical science of what's taking place in our own psyche. Each one of those houses represents another ego. And as Daenerys uh, Targaryen says, the wheel goes round and around and around. And sometimes this ego is on top and sometimes another ego is on top. And what's getting crushed at the bottom of the wheel? Well, that's our true self, our consciousness, our true, our, our will, the will of our being is crushed. Truth is crushed. Compassion is crushed. Our intuition is crushed. It's crucified upside down by Ramses Bolton. And if you're familiar with the show, you know what Ramses does to Theon. Theon Greyjoy. The names, not all of the names, but many of the names matter in Game of Thrones. We couldn't identify all of the names as being, you know, very significant. But many of the names matter. Uh, and the, the characters themselves and the characterization, the portrayal of the characters matter. Uh, Circe's, for example. Now, Circe's, the reason why we brought up Dynasty from the 80s, and we brought up Joan Collins's character, Alexis, because Circe's is just like Alexis. And that's why Game of Thrones is more dynasty than it is Dallas. And Circe in Greek mythology, uh, we can sh let's uh, let's let's see if we can show you this. This is from uh, Britannica. It says Circe in Greek legend is a sorceress, the daughter of Helios, the sun god, and of the ocean nymph Perse. She was able, by means of drugs and incantations, to change humans into wolves, lions, and swine. The Greek hero Odysseus visited her island, Aea, with his companions, whom she changed into swine. Uh, but Odysseus, protected by the herb Molly, a gift from Hermes, which is Hermes Trismegistus, Toth, compelled her to restore them to their original shape. He stayed with her for one year before resuming his journey. Story told by Homer in Odyssey, books 10 and 12, uh, the Greco-Roman tradition placed her island near Italy or located on Mount Cicero. Circe is an inverted divine mother. And she has the power to change humans into wolves, lions, and swine. And what's interesting is there are two houses in Game of Thrones whose sigils are wolves and lions. And that's, of course, House Stark and House Lannister. The ruling house of the south, the Lannisters, the lions, and the ruling house of the north, the Starks, they're the wolves. And lions and wolves uh, are lions and wolves are, are um, commonly referred to in 
in Game of Thrones. Certainly the wolf imagery is over the top with all the dire wolves and, and so on. But she also has the power to change humans into swine. And Cersei's throughout the series, she has that quote that says, anyone who is not us is our enemy. And she does seem, she's so hell-bent on ruling that everybody else is swine in her eyes. It's, they're just they're just swine for the slaughter. And uh, she is a truly diabolical, scheming uh, character. And she's every bit, I mean, she's, and she, the actress, I, can't remember, I don't know the actress's name, but she does a fantastic job of portraying that um, that matriarch, that uh, evil matriarch. But there's an example for of how a name in Game of Thrones, you can see where George R. R. Martin drew his inspiration for the character. And whether he did that consciously or unconsciously, it's not by accident that the villainous of the Game of Thrones is Cersei's. Just as it's not by accident that the heroine of Game of Thrones is Daenerys. Daenerys is, well, again, we'll pull this up. In Greek myth, in Greek myth, Artemis is most closely related to nature. She is associated with the bear, probably the first animal ever worshipped by men. The character of Daenerys Targaryen has many parallels with Artemis, one of the Greek versions of the Earth Mother, where Artemis, mistress of the beasts, is with her bear and all the animals of the wild. Daenerys is the mother of dragons. When we re-approached Game of Thrones and we were watching it and it was the, the moment that Daenerys Targaryen gave birth to three dragons and she became the mother of dragons that we knew she is the Divine Mother. Her character is the personification of the Divine Mother. But she's more than that. And her relationship to Artemis, the Earth Mother, is revealed later on in the story. And we'll get to that. But for the time being... We can explore Daenerys, and she's storm-born. Now, what's born of storms? This is not something that we're here to answer. We're here to ask the question. If, if names such as Circe's is so important, 
then what about Stormborn? She's not just Daenerys Targaryen. That would have been easy. But George R. R. Martin didn't stop there. He, he made it specific to say that, no, she's Daenerys Stormborn, and she is a Targaryen, but she's Stormborn. Why Stormborn? What is born of storms? It's worthwhile meditating on. And again, this will come into play as we get into the latter seasons in our discussion and how the movement of the story shifts from microcosm to macrocosm. But Daenerys, incidentally, why Daenerys? It turns out that in the, if we have this correct, it's the third or fourth century AD. It's, or second, third, second, third or fourth century AD, sometime around there, the Romans started printing coin, you know, silver coins, and they were called denaries. D-E-N-A-R-I-S, denaries, or denaries. They were currency. And they were silver, not gold silver why is everybody in the house targaryen's hair silver it's not gold they're not blonde they're silver haired they're white haired they're silver haired and the heroine of the story is Daenerys. this cannot be coincidence this is not coincidence and and one of the things that is stormborn is lightning and lightning is white not yellow it's silver not gold that's and lightning is current it's currency and denarius was the name of the coin the name of the currency of the roman empire was denarius that currency that lightning that electricity what is that if not the sexual force the electromagnetic currents of the fourth dimension, which are which is Yasad, the ninth sphere on the tree of life. In the electric universe, the mother of all nature, the mother of the whole universe. There is no matter as such. Matter means mother. That's where the word comes from. But there is no matter as such. It is all energy condensed and crystallized and vibrated into matter into solidity condensed crystallized all of this is in a name Daenerys and looking into the Daenerys Stormborn and the white-haired uh heir to the throne heir to the iron throne she who must rule in the iron age and she who is here to break the wheel at the top of which is the iron throne and at the bottom of it which is the flayed man the inverted crucified skinned alive man 
And again, the flayed man as a symbol. Crucifixion is one thing. And Jesus was crucified on the cross. We know what that means. But the flayed man, there is also a cross. But the flayed man is upside down. He's inverted. That's an inverted pentagram. And he's skinned alive. Meaning, it's not the superficial man that's inverted by the Game of Thrones. It's not the eye. It's not the ego that's crucified. It's what's inside that is crucified and inverted. It's inverted on the cross and it is crushed by the wheel. This is such a powerful symbol. This cannot go unchecked, unmentioned. Because this superficial, you know, this, this outward rubber, rubbery, you know, it's just like in those movies when you see, you know, in Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise pulls off a rubber face and you, he reveals, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, my, um, Hunt, uh, whatever the, the character's name, his last name is Hunt, right? But he's going under disguise and he pulls off that rubber face and he reveals his true self. Well, the flayed man, that superficial eye, is, it's, it's not, is removed. So who then is being, who then is inverted and being sacrificed? But the self that's inside, the true self, the higher self, the being who suffers, who's inverted, who falls, and who's crushed by the wheel, by this ring, this what is precious to us, which is the ego, the ego, the I, that wants that throne, that wants to sit upon the iron throne and rule the seven kingdoms, all seven chakras. The ego wants to be in that position of power, to have its desires, its cravings and aversions, its identifications and attachments, to be what is foremost of importance to the whole of the kingdom and all seven kingdoms. Westeros. This is what even Lord of the Rings and what many other mythologies has not has not embodied or captured in the same way. Because it's very often been reduced or simplified and perhaps even oversimplified. Tolkien has this very elaborate, extended, expanded mythology and expanded history that spans thousands upon thousands of years. But it all culminates in this one little thing and um, and one of the characters uh, in Lord of the Rings says, you know, it's 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 amazing that you know so much can be so much trouble is made over such a such a small thing. 
And don't get us wrong. There's value in that. There's value in this reduction because the ring is so innocent. It is, it's just a trifle. It's a trinket. It's a MacGuffin to use cinematic parlance, right? It's just this plot device. And people look at it and say, how can such a small little thing make all this terrible stuff happen? And yet, it is, it is precious to us, this small little trite, insignificant thing. How many people do you encounter or have you encountered that say, oh, the ego is nothing to worry about. I have my ego under control. We need the ego. We can't live without the ego. And on and on and on it goes. It's just they, they belittle it. They simplify it. It's nothing. Just like so many characters, like Boromir, for example, who says, well, you know, let, let me have the ring. Let, let us use the ring. It is a gift. Let us use this ring. How many people will tell you how useful the ego is and how they have their ego under control and they use their ego to their advantage? It's a gift. It's a powerful tool, the ego is. And they will instruct you and advise you on using it, just as Boromir would use this thing. This is how seductive this little trifle of a thing is. In Game of Thrones, we get a very different take. The throne, the iron throne, is what everybody wants. It's a big deal to everybody. And the reason is because in Game of Thrones, everybody represents an ego. All the houses, all the great houses jockeying for position, they are those, those seven deadly sins, those seven houses, and all their peripheral houses, they're all jockeying for position. And characters like Littlefinger, who is uh, conspiring to, 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 to sit himself on the Iron Throne, which is what he's always ever wanted. This Littlefinger, who is an advisor to the king, yes, but he also has many brothels. And uh, one of his best friends, if you can say friends, is uh, um, Various. Various. The, um, we have a website open that's reminding us of all the names of the characters because it's hard for us to keep them all straight. Um, the, uh, the essentially the, um, the spy, the, the eunuch spy, various, Larius. No, no, it's various. I wish they would have done a better uh, job presenting this information. You got to scroll through all the ads to get to all the information. So past all the houses, Lord Varys, who's also known as the spider. He's the eunuch. He's the one who has all the spies, his little, his little sparrows, his little birds that feed him information. 
and Littlefinger uh, makes sort of friends with him, and they, the two of them conspire together. And Varys later on claims that he does it for the for the benefit of the Empire, but he's an he's an asexual being, and and Littlefinger is the opposite, right? Littlefinger owns brothels. But he's also has his spies and he's also conspiring, but he's but he owns brothels. Whereas Varys is a eunuch. He's uh he's castrated. So you have these two aspects of information. And the sharing of information or the, the harnessing of information is one's being harnessed by someone who's a master of lust. Is a master of desire. And another is one who has no lust, has no desire, and has no desire for the Iron Throne. He only wants what's best for the kingdom. And he deals in information for the sake of what's best for the kingdom. That's Varys. And Varys, incidentally, the name Varys uh is related to the word veritas which means truth Varus is a dealer in truth but to be a dealer in truth one must be objective one must be a eunuch a eunuch has no desire there's no subjective aspect to the information a eunuch is an an asexual being in the same way that our innermost being is a hermaphrodite being both masculine and feminine like all angels angels are neither male nor female they're both and being neither is similar in is similar esoterically as saying being both because one who is both has no sexual desire one who is neither has no sexual desire can the eunuch cannot be labeled as this or that in the same way that um a uh, an angel cannot Oh, look, someone's spamming our uh, our chat. There's a chat bot spamming us. All right, blocked. Okay. So. So we have the, the wheel, the Game of Thrones, that's happening inside our psyche. And Daenerys Stormborn sexual force the divine mother and divine mother nature the one also the divine mother related to the to the earth as daenerys relates to artemis and she's the mother of dragons and there's three dragons now why three dragons three of course is the creative law of three but so there's so there's a trinity of dragons but the three also relates to our three brains the mental center the emotional center and the motor instinctive sexual center so the human machine has three brains and when we meditate 
on the elimination of our egos, we uh, meditate on we meditate on being incinerated in each of those three brains. So naturally, to depict this somehow would come with three dragons. And the dragon is traditionally, certainly in the East, associated with the Divine Mother Kundalini. And also in the South, uh, Quetzalcoatl, the winged serpent of the Americas. That's Quetzalcoatl, that's the South American Christ, is also associated with the Kundalini. Oh, there's Azazel who says, I was waiting for it to appear. Uh, the three dragons, you mean? By the way, here's the link. Um, we didn't post it sooner. Post it now. Here's the link to jump on. Um, Lux Custo says, we know you've done a live stream before on impressions, but could you explain your process of transforming the difficult, lustful impressions of Game of Thrones now compared to when you couldn't before? Oh, Azazel says knows the spamming. Yeah, okay. Uh, yes. The process of transforming the impression. So being able to watch something like Game of Thrones or indeed its sequel, House of the Dragon, which is uh, even more um, uh, soft porn-like than Game of Thrones was. We've only watched one episode and already the sex scenes are more explicit. They're not explicit, they're not pornographic, but there is, you know, as close to being pornographic without being pornographic, without being explicit, in other words. How do you transform difficult, lustful impressions? Well, in our case, one of the key steps was not to be afraid of them. Because fear and lust, as we've discussed uh, only a few weeks ago, are consorts to each other. And fear plays a major role in sexuality because fear is the ego of control. And because both fear and lust play vital roles in all egos. They are the mother and father of all egos, are fear and lust. And when confronted by a challenging impression, that's just like being confronted by anything that rattles us, that rattles our comfort and security, that rattles our homeostasis, disrupts or disturbs us. Now, in truth, the impression is not what disrupts or disturbs us. It is our reaction to the impression that disrupts and disturbs us. That's the key. 
the transformation of impression, it, the transformation of impressions is all about observing ourselves and recognizing what is being triggered, what is being stimulated within ourselves and recognizing it and not identifying with it, not attaching to it, but instead realizing its antithesis, which is our true self, and then absorbing and processing and digesting the impression with our consciousness, not with the subjective ego. This process cannot truly be grasped conceptually in the mind. It is, it can only be experienced because it's subtle and it's, it's like anything. It's like, I can't explain to you how to play chopsticks on the piano. Can't do it. I can't explain to you the, the technique or the intricacies of kneading dough or forming clay into a pot on a spinning wheel. It's something that you learn by doing, but you have to do it. But I can give you some key pointers or some key markers that help define the activity. The impression does not disturb you, does not disrupt you. That's a myth. The transformation of impressions, a better way of describing it is you are transforming, you are transforming reactions into responses. You are taking the impression away from the ego mind or the ego heart or the ego physicality, the instincts, sexual impulse, etc. So egos like lust working through the body that want to react with lust to lustful images, you take, you intercede with consciousness. You recognize the lust, you recognize its reaction, but you don't identify with it. You say, okay, that's just lust. Yeah, it's responding to these lustful images, but you recognize them as lustful images. And now you focus in and you can remember your divine mother. You can remember that you're looking at naked bodies. There's absolutely nothing wrong with naked bodies. But when you look at, so I'll give you an example. In House of the Dragon, the so-called sex scenes in the brothel are, we say it's as close as you can get to pornography without being explicit. And it's absolutely disgusting. There's nothing for me anyway. There's nothing de desirable about it because I'm processing it with my consciousness. And it's just base, disgusting, animal lust. And so that's, quote, doesn't do it for me. If it was more sensual, if it was more erotic, it was if it was more romantic, if it was more titular in some way, I might I might have a harder time. 
because then I would, it wouldn't be so easy for me to look at it and be disgusted by it. You see? So, we'll tell you another thing that we're speaking of Game of Thrones. We don't have to just focus on lust here because lust is difficult for many people. But what about the violence? There's lots of violence in Game of Thrones. And it's brutal, graphic violence. And it's disturbing to see. It is disturbing. There's, it's, it's so visceral. It's so brutal at times. And we are of uh, mixed feelings about it. Because on the one hand, at times, the for example, the beheadings and this and that and the other thing, there is a very esoteric aspect to those who are beheaded for crimes. But then there are other times when it seems like it's uh the violence is just gratuitous it's just there for ratings it's just there for the titular uh stimulation of primal animal urges for violence and again to be able to witness that and not get caught up in it but also not get caught up in the aversion to it the fear of it or the repulsion by it. This is a very personal, individual experience. We are in no way, shape, and form are we advocating for individuals to go seek out ultraviolence or to seek out pornography because pornography uh, is, if you watch enough of it, it's damaging. It's you know, you have to be very, 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 very high level, right, to be able to transform. There are there are impressions that this humanity creates now, with its artifice and with its uh, with its degenerated fantasies, that are that are just they're just detrimental. It's just better to avoid them because we have to be practical. We are not resurrected masters. We are we're not we're not able to walk through hell yet and be unscathed and untouched by it. This is what transformation of impressions is really all about. To be able to enter into hell and walk through hell and not be touched by the filth. But we're not there yet. And so we should be selective and and that's why 10 years ago I wasn't ready to watch Game of Thrones. I wasn't. I was caught up and identified with the surface surface level stuff. Even if it was only identified with it enough to say I don't need to see this or I can't I don't I don't want to I don't want to watch this. And if that's where you are at, that's fine. That's fine. Nobody is saying you have to force yourself to watch something that that your intuition is telling you you're not ready for this yet. You're not there yet. You haven't mastered transformation of impressions to the degree 
where you can you can receive impressions like these we have to be you have that's why we have to know ourselves we have to observe ourselves that's and that's why it took over 10 years before i could actually watch game of thrones but now that i have i can do a live stream on it why because i was watching it with my consciousness and all those impressions that were triggering lust and fear and everything inside of me well they're no longer triggering those things or or they're they're trying to trigger those things but i have those things so much more under control than i did 10 years ago and so this is another aspect of transformation of impressions right so not everybody it's not like you start doing this one day and okay now i can go watch pornography and not be affected by it no no no, we don't you do not want to give everyone that impression. Pardon the pun. Um, we hope that answers your question. We hope you will that answer your question, uh, Lukes. Uh, let's get to another couple more of these questions here. As Azel says, we found the cause of our depression by being attacked recently by a raging demon of lust. I comprehended the depression. So now it is better, even though it's definitely, definitively still there. Um, sexual frustration in the subconscious mind, a raging uh, that's definitely um, that's definitely a uh, probable cause. And yes, identifying it is one thing, or recognizing it is one thing the key to dealing with that is to uh practice the uh the rites of rejuvenation and the uh and pranayama um and to meditate on the cause or the source of the uh the sexual frustration Benjamin says, uh, everything in the spheres manifest and unmanifest is sex. I think this is why it's difficult. Uh, lust is a god. Yeah, but lust is not sex. Sex and lust are, are not uh, synonymous. And... Uh, we might get into that because sex is just the law of creation. Benjamin says, yeah, I was just wearing with surface simultaneously, objective simultaneously, thought feeling it's a mess. Okay. Um, as Azul says, those demons seem sensual, pleasant, nama. But when you try to escape the grasp, they scratch, bite, kiss, etc., to keep you there. Um, the impressions of lust, the impressions of pornography, the impressions of sensuality, of of eroticism, they lust creates inside of us, and fantasizing and pornography creates inside of us um the incubi and the succubi these are 
what's known as astrolarva and they're aggregates that are created as a byproduct of lustful fantasizing or lustful impressions which aren't transformed and he, and again it's very 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 difficult to transform lustful impressions that's why it's better to stay out of brothels and it's better to stay away from pornography and in general it's better to stay away from um scenes like that but what we find is especially true for men that the uh, the succubi come and uh, fornicate with us in our sleep and that's how uh, those who practice scientific chastity often uh, end up having wet dreams. Uh, wet dreams are succubi that are coming to feed. And if we have a lot of red meat or a lot of spicy food or a lot some different types of food that are heavy in fire, we, we are consuming a lot of fire, then that fire makes us more sexually potent and that fire accumulates in us and then we attract more of these these astral larvae but these astral larvae are created through untransformed impressions of lustful impressions or tit titillating erotic impressions looks custo says yes yeah, so helpful thank you for deeply answering the question okay you're welcome all right where were we we are at daenerys targaryen and her three dragons now Daenerys, um, okay. So let's another quick question, uh, quick comment. Yes, we still perform the rites of rejuvenation, but we try to be in a better, pure state of mind. We cannot do it if we one day have a lot of raging lust within. It is. Uh, In our experience, if it's if it's sexual frustration that's the cause of the depression, the real challenge is uh, that the energy is all negatively charged, and it's not. We don't have access to it. That's my experience of of, of depression. Right? Is that the energy is being? We're, I'm being drained from energy, so I can't even muster up the energy to do. Um, uh, the rites of rejuvenation or if even if i try to do pranayama there's nothing there to work with it's being consumed it's being inverted and so um sometimes it's all we can do is just wait it out you can recognize it and try not to feed it and try not to uh, avoid it, just observe it. And sometimes it just has to run its course. There are astrological, astronomical influences, there's planetary influences, you know, there's the Mercury retrograde and all of these types of things that come into place. There's the phase of the moon. There's all sorts of different factors that come into play. And sometimes we just have to walk through the valley of darkness. And but if we recognize that as just something that it just is what it is just right now it is what it is that's this is what i'm dealing with this is what i have to deal with but this too shall pass and not allow ourselves to obsess over it 
or get caught up in it or worry about it. Because one of the things that Gnostics do is we tend to beat ourselves up and judge ourselves and condemn ourselves because we have ego or because we suffer because of ego or we have anxiety, we have depression. And, oh, I must be a terrible person or this demon or that demon and blah, 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 and on and on and on and on and on it goes. And I speak out of personal experience. But what's important to know is that that is not your higher self. Your higher self, your divine mother, doesn't think, let alone think that way, doesn't judge, like not that way. Yeah, exactly. It's fear. And it's a it's the downward spiral. It's a it's a Chinese finger trap. The harder you pull, the tighter a grip it has on you. So don't pull, go into it. That's how you get your that's how you get your fingers out of a Chinese finger trap. Right? You hopefully you know what I'm what I'm talking about. Those woven things you stick your fingers in, you try to pull them out, and, and you can't. And the harder you pull, the tighter they grip. And the way you get your fingers out of a Chinese finger trap is you push them in. And then you remove them one at a time. One step at a time. And you go into your the causes of your suffering. Our opponent our adversary is not our enemy even lust even fear even a demon even incubi even succubi these are not our enemies these are our adversaries so you must deal with them like you would an adversary not an enemy adversaries are not meant to be feared They're meant to be comprehended. They're meant to be grappled with. You grapple with an adversary, an opponent. You engage your adversary, your opponent. You don't avoid it. You engage it. This is what's so important. It's very easy to fall into the trap that our egos are our enemies. Because we have, you know, demons and Satan and all this kind of stuff. And and they appear that way for a reason. They are grotesque and whatever because they're born of fear. They are the stuff of nightmares. They can't be anything else. Unless, unless they take on a more feminine appearance, then they're beautiful. They're stunning. They're hypnotic. They're mesmerizing. They're seductive. And our our egos can appear to us and they stroke us and they 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 touch us 
and they speak to us with this soothing, calming, seductive voice. Because that's their other nature, which is lust. Fear and lust. All egos are made up of these two prime, primal, primary substances. And if we wanted to go one more step, every because every ego is an I, the third aspect of every single ego has to be pride. Pride is the child of fear and lust. It's another trinity, right? It's the law of three. If creation, if goodness is born of masculine and feminine and union of masculine and feminine, then it's, it only, it's only appropriate that the creation of suffering is the union of feminine lust and, and masculine um, uh, fear, which is control. And the child of their union is the I, pride or shame. And really, in a, like you can do simple metaphysical mathematics, right? What did the Catholic Church use to control for an entire millennia from the inception, from, uh, from the Nicene Council, was shame, sexual shame. What is sexual shame? It's the fear of lust, the fear of sex, the fear of fornication. Fear, lust, and shame. Shame is pride. Shame is the flip side of pride. But shame is pride. So you have this dynamic that all egos are some combination, some uh, configuration of fear, lust, and pride. And remember, pride has the small... It's not... It's the, it's the smallest contributing factor but it is, it is the most dominant active productive factor because I is identification. It is the I before I want. If desire is the want and fear is the what comes after the want, pride is what comes before the want. So to use a kind of neuro-linguistic, algorithmic approach, because remember, egos are mechanical. We can piece together how egos work in this way, because we because language is spell language is magic. That's why words are called spelling. So when we say I want a Ferrari. Ferrari is the outcome. I is the pride, the identification, the identify, the, the 
element of self, the I, which wants to that outcome, that's the control. The outcome is the aspect of fear. The I is the pride. And the want is the desire, the lust. I want a Ferrari is, is just an expression. I lust to control an outcome. Pride lusts to control an outcome. Pride, lust, fear. Pride, lust, fear. There are other configurations of this. So you, when you say, I am the greatest, I am, that's identification first, I am the greatest, but why are you the greatest? That's control, that's dominance, that's fear. But you, but you have that because you are afraid to be beneath anybody, to be lesser than anyone. You want to be at the top of the pyramid. And of course, whoever is at the top of the pyramid, that's the alpha. They get first pick of everything. And that's your desire. I am the greatest is an identification, but there's there's fear, lust, and pride in that statement. As Azil says, yeah, when we had a conversation where I said, how does this serve anything for anyone? And it responded, it is good for us. And that is when we tried to escape. And that is when it raged. Okay. And he says, in a lucid dream, if that is specifically needed. I think you're referring there to uh, to the lust that's behind your depression, I assume. Uh, Mugabu says, as I was doing shopping, I saw this really voluptuous woman wearing tight-fitting clothes. For a few seconds, my eyes were hypnotized by her assets. <laughs> the first reaction was to blame myself. How are you a spiritual man if you still look at an asset last like that? You're a fraud. Then this voice I know so well told me, you are human. You are not yet 100% realized master, and it is completely normal for you to still look and have sexual needs and have sexual attraction. There are, there are two things about this. If you observe yourself carefully as a man, we can't speak uh, to a woman and a woman's experience, but as a man, our eyes without we can be staring in one direction we can be as mugaboo is describing in a grocery store line putting our groceries out onto the the conveyor belt and without even knowing why we will turn around and our eyes will immediately go to a woman's body an attractive woman who was behind us, we had no idea she was there. But our motor instinctive sexual center knew she was there. 
and our attention, our lust knew she was there. And our attention and our gaze is directed and automatically, mechanically, without us even knowing what's going on, we're already staring at a, at a, a, a woman's assets. And if you're a man and you observe yourself, you will watch this happening to yourself, like Mugaboo is describing happened to him. You can't blame yourself for this. It is what it is. We are what we are. We are intellectual animals. We are ruled by egos. That's our nature right now. The key is to, in that moment, just become aware of the fact and say, oh, there's lust playing its animal games with me, playing its, you know, its, uh, its, its uh, desire, its, game, its games of desire, its game of thrones. And so one of the keys is to look up, if you can, at the woman's face. Look at her face. When you see a beautiful woman, look at her face. Actively, consciously try to avert your eyes away from those body parts that your lust wants to look at and your lust wants to focus on. Look at her face. Look into her eyes. It's very, very difficult if you are a compassionate caring, conscientious individual to look at a woman's face and feel outright lust for her. Because if you look into her eyes, you look at her face, you realize that's a, that's a human being. That's a person. That's not an object. So this is a a trick that we can use it's not a trick it's a, a useful approach to de-objectifying individuals make them real people and you make them real people by looking into their soul if you can do it sometimes the woman is of course turned the other way you can't look at her face so then look away just look away and don't look back because something inside of you is going to want you to look back. It really will. And it'll, it'll be a struggle. You'll have to actively not look back. But what will help you in not looking back is thinking about your Divine Mother. And think about your Divine Mother's three dragons. It's true. You can use any symbol, any allegory that you wish. And, uh, and Daenerys Targaryen, Targaryen, Daenerys Stormborn, is the Divine Mother. For the first few seasons of Game of Thrones, into the, she's out in the east, and she's uh, not even on Westeros, she's on another continent entirely, and um, she takes it upon herself to free slaves. This is clearly an homage to Exodus. And you have the so-called elite, the masters. And they're the masters of the Black Lodge. And they are the, the slaves 
are the consciousness that have been enslaved by the Black Lodge, by our egos. And so that entire sequence, that entire part of the story is an allegory or an homage to Exodus of Moses freeing the Israelites from Egypt, from Pharaoh. And it's an obvious homage. It's a desert land. It's There's uh, a pyramid in the one city. Um, it's clearly an homage to uh, the story of Exodus. The difference being, of course, is that it's not a man that's doing the liberation. It's a woman. It's, it's the Divine Mother. So it's a more obvious, it's a more almost literal allegory. And then, of course, we get to Daenerys Targaryen gets to Westeros proper. She has an army with her, an army of freed slaves, no less, and <clears throat> her three dragons. And what plays out <clears throat> in the latter seasons is uh, a very messy, not a very eloquently um, executed narrative, but that's because the uh, the showrunners, Benioff and Weiss, didn't have the written material to work with anymore because George R. R. Martin hadn't finished writing The Winds of Winter yet, and all they had was just some basic notes. And so they basically had to make up a lot of stuff. But some of the things that they did, didn't make up that are there, and we should worthwhile mention uh, before we get to the very end, is let's talk a little bit about the wall and the north. And one of the most endearing and powerful statements that comes out of Game of Thrones is, winter is coming. Winter is coming. And in Game of Thrones, winter is associated with death. Because when winter comes, what comes with winter is the cold, is the frost, but it's also the, the Lord of Death, the, 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 the White Walkers, and the army of the dead. And yes, you can think of them as zombies, or you can think of them as undead, or however you want to think about it, but the, the, it's death. Death comes when winter comes. And Westeros, this Game of Thrones, takes place south of the wall. And it's an ice wall that, has, that was erected a thousand years ago to keep out the dead, to keep the dead out of Westeros. There is one thing that threatens the Game of Thrones more than anything else. And that threat is death. There is nothing that we fear more than death. And that's because there's nothing that the egos fear more than death. They will do anything to keep out the dead. 
even relegate their most dangerous criminals and violent offenders to go to the night's watch, to go and walk the wall and keep out the northerners, the wildlings, and death, the armies of the dead. This is such a powerful uh, symbol and one of the things that allows the Game of Thrones to perpetuate and precipitate inside of us is our fear of death. Because our fear of death is the primal underlying foundation for all of our fears and all of our desire to control. In the same way that our desire to fornicate, lust, is the basis of all other desires, all other cravings and aversions, is predicated on that that baseline primal animal instinct to perpetuate the species. And we talked about this in the live stream on uh, on the pimp of Babylon, where we talked about fear being a primal mechanical algorithm that functions on mechanical nature and it's essential for the survival and perpetuation of mechanical nature in the same way that lust is, because lust is the drive to procreate and fear is the drive to survive. And pride is the primal instinct of identification, which which is the glue, if you will, that glues it all together. But for a human being, this dynamic fear of death and desire to procreate and identification with fear and desire, this is an absolute detriment. This is a wall that keeps us from our destiny, from keeps us from being who we truly are, which is whole. There is a conflation here that, and this is where Game of Thrones, if, you see, because George R.R. R. Martin didn't finish the books, Game of Thrones reveals some of the problems that George R.R. R. Martin seemed to write himself into, or that the, the showrunners ran themselves into, because on the surface, it's a cool thing the armies of the dead and the lands of the living and you know we got to defend it and the wall and everything else and it's maybe an allegory for the wall that trump wanted to build or the berlin wall or all kinds of walls so on and so forth and um the problem is 
is that you have the element of the old gods and the new, and then you have Bran, Bran Stark, who becomes the new three-eyed raven. Now, the three-eyed raven is a very uh, on-the-nose type of symbol because the ravens in Westeros are the messengers. So the ravens in Westeros are, are Mercury, are Hermes, the winged god who delivers, who's the messenger of the gods, the winged angel who's the messenger of the gods. Uh, the ravens are that. And so the three-eyed raven is Mercury proper, proper Hermes proper. He is the one with the, the third eye. He's the one with the access to the Akashic records. And he is paralyzed uh, for the reason he has to go on this journey and he has to go to the journey into the north to this tree and he meets the uh, existing three-eyed raven and becomes the new three-eyed raven. And according to the show, the... Uh, the the white walkers and the and the 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 lord of uh, the lord of death or the king of the the king of the dead the king of the white walkers um he's coming because he wants to kill the three-eyed raven and he wants to you know you know send the 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 whole world into an everlasting night and all this kind of stuff if George R. R. Martin is having difficulty finishing the book, The Winds of Winter, and, and finishing the series, it's because he's he's written himself into a corner where death is an absolute necessity for the rejuvenation of the kingdom. Psychological death. The three-eyed raven doesn't have a future without the White Walkers. He's written himself into a corner he doesn't know how to get himself out of because the Game of Thrones, is, it's at the one hand, he wants to have his cake and eat it too. Daenerys comes to destroy the wheel, but it seems as though the showrunners wanted to preserve what was there. And that brings us to the finale where there's the War of the North the, or the War of Winterfell where Winterfell has to defend against the North and they, they kill the King of the Dead and then all the dead, all the undead die, all the White Walkers die. And then Daenerys comes with her with her dragon, her only one remaining dragon, because the other two dragons are killed in the in the in the course of events, and um, they surround King's Landing, and they invade King's Landing, and they capture the Red Keep, and the Red Keep surrenders. But then Daenerys Targaryen decides that she's going to torch the city anyway, and she's flying around and she's torching the kingdom. And when you first experience this, it's it's a shock, and it's it's like what a 
what a terrible characterization of Daenerys Targaryen. Like she's the one that was freeing slaves all this time. Now she's now she's burning innocent people in the street. But you see, this is where Game of Thrones, rightly or wrongly, did what Lord of the Rings film trilogy with Peter Jackson and the producers of the uh, the Lord of the Rings film trilogy didn't have the courage to do. And that is to include the scouring of the Shire. And if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings books, you know that a band of orcs following the destruction of the ring, following all the events of the end of the the film or the end of the, the end of the, the trilogy, a band of orcs that had gone west wander their way into the Shire and they scorch the Shire. It's called the scouring of the Shire. They destroy the Shire. And Tolkien scholars have debated over the meaning of this for decades. And countless Tolkien fans, they, a lot of them have no idea. Now, when we read the book, as a child, we had no idea what that was all about. Why you had this happy ending and everything else. And some and some people just speculate that Tolkien needed to he didn't he didn't want his uh, mythology to end on such a happy note with such a happy ending. He needed to have some kind of dark thing there to balance it all out. So so the scouring of the Shire is there. But all of these uh critics and um and academics and whatnot simply miss the point. And that is Lord of the Rings. And just like Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones is a contemporary mythology for the times. And just as the book of Revelation talks about the illumination or enlightenment of an individual psyche in microcosm, it is also a revelation about the end of humanity in macrocosm. And an end of the end of the the end of a humanity is the end of a humanity, the end of a global civilization. There is no happy ending. There's those who make it on the ship to Valinor. If we have that into the into the uh, into the farthing grounds, if we have the names correct, Tolkien scholars, please uh, forgive us if we have the got the names well. But they get on the ship for the far, you know, with the with the elves to go to the far, you know, whatever. And in the film, we see Sam returning to the Shire, and it's a happy ending. Sam is back with his family, but you see, that's not what happens. That's not our fate. It's not our fate. We're in the Kali Yuga for this humanity. Game of Thrones is about the Iron Throne. It's about the throne in the Iron Age. Daenerys Targaryen has to destroy King's Landing. She has to raise it to the ground with her dragon. And she does. Now, because the ego can't understand this, the intuition knows that this is how the story has to end. But Benioff and Weiss, the showrunners, 
they don't have a intellectual framework with which to contextualize that other than oh Daenerys Stormborn uh, Daenerys Targaryen is just like her father and she's 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 gone mad she's gone insane with power and she's she's just gone crazy with uh, power lust blood lust and she's gonna scorch everything uh scorched earth uh uh whatever and then so they have uh Jon Snow stab her and then the dragon carries her off and all this you know stuff like it was handled so poorly but you see they the ego has to somehow justify or rationalize what it cannot accept which is death a better way a more esoteric way to end the game of thrones is for daenerys stormborn to have her army defeated and she has to go into the north and she meets the lord of the dead and she discovers the true nature of death and her true purpose and daenerys targaryen the army that she needs to conquer westeros and destroy king's landing and break the wheel is the army of the dead and that is why the dead descend from the north into westeros that is why winter comes winter is coming because it is the dead that bring the game to an end and daenerys stormborn knowing that recognizing that she needs to come and give a reason for why the dead don't need to invade so she breaks the wheel in a different way but death comes but not in the way not in the usual way and they don't fight death in the usual way daenerys stormborn and her dragons work with death because that's how the divine mother works with us psychological death the death of the ego the death of the seven houses and the rebirth of a free westeros free of the feudal lords and the 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 game of thrones this is the correct esoteric interpretation and the correct esoteric resolution to the story And it is a twist that suddenly would have made everyone realize, oh my God, so the Night's Watch and a thousand years of the wall, they were keeping out the dead, was actually perpetuating this wheel. And Daenerys Targaryen is instrumental in needing to break that wheel. Maybe it's she and her dragons because it's one of her dragons that breaks the wall. It's just that it becomes an undead dragon. So George, or, you know, George had the intuition. He had, he has the bits and pieces of it. He has most of it there. It's just somehow the way it was interpreted and the way it was applied in the end was, was sloppy, messy, because the ego intellect gets in the way to try to understand these intuitions. 
but you can't think your way through this stuff. You can't think your way through mythology. You have to feel it. You have to see it. You have to have the capacity of the third eye raven. And really, that's what Bran should be doing. He should be giving that power to others. Others have it, the sight. He should be showing how others... So when Bran goes to the north to become the three-eyed raven, that's when he should encounter death. And he should encounter death. Somehow that would be the process of him becoming the three-eyed raven. And then Daenerys Stormborn comes, and then he reveals to her, they work, and the, and the three of them, death, and the three-eyed raven and the divine mother together bring down the wall and death descends on the seven houses and king's landing and westeros is freed from the wheel of thrones or the game of thrones and the iron throne should be melted should be smeltered and melted down and then Daenerys' destiny is fulfilled. And death has done its job. Death then retreats and recedes back to the north. Winter ends. It's one of the shortest winters ever. Because winter is just here. Now is the winter of our discontent. Suffering is there. Death is there. Only insofar as to reduce that which must be reduced to ashes to be reduced to ashes so the phoenix can rise from the flames. And the phoenix that rises from the flames, the, 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 the ravens, the three-eyed ravens who arise, each house, let's say, instead of the Game of Thrones, what, is, what it's replaced by is each house has a three-eyed raven who was born. One of the, one of the, the members of each house's becomes a three-eyed raven and the seven three-eyed ravens come together and they form a council of ravens around a round table and and the round table is made the legs of the round table um, is made out of the melted down iron throne now we got a version of this right because bran the three-eyed raven becomes the new king of westeros so you see, we get a version of it. And we have, you know, the seven houses agree to, to, uh, to, to stand behind him and declare him as their king, et cetera, et cetera. But you see, we end up with a version of this, but the execution of it is very sloppy. It's very messy and it's very, you know, superficial and ultimately it's, it's conflicted. So we can we can see why George R. R. Martin hasn't finished writing the book and why he seems to have writer's block and why he can't finish A Song of Ice and Fire because it's like he's written himself into a corner or he's written himself into a place where it's just he can't make sense of it with his head anymore because it's starting to conflict with his intuition or or something is blocking him from realizing it. But this is the, uh, the, the real um, the twist, the real twist and the real irony of the Game of Thrones is exactly that, is that wall, that ice wall that has been keeping death out 
and the wildlings are that are another aspect of the army which um instead of because he also recognized okay well those wildlings they have to be harnessed in some way and he's harnessed by john snow um but again they could just as easily be utilized by um uh daenerys targaryen however if they are utilized by Jon snow then daenerys targaryen and Jon snow coming together that's fire and ice coming together that makes more sense and then the wildlings and the wildlings are no longer fighting against death they're now fighting alongside death and that's how you make that happen because the wildlings right the ego the animal self is what fights against death but the three-eyed raven inside of us must die and his paralysis brand's paralysis is a representation of that he loses the use of his physical body so all of these images all of these symbols are there is powerful like we can't the way the game of thrones did that what 700 foot high wall that runs for thousands of miles that was built a thousand years ago this is a this is a a a, a monumental symbol right this is like it's huge you can't miss it three dragons you can't miss it right there, there's these enormous enormous over the top um uh symbols but they have to be realized as symbols the 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 story the narrative must be complete and uh and the and that's why it's stalled i can guarantee you that's why it's stalled and why the fans are so frustrated at george rr R. martin that he won't finish winds of winter and that you know that and he's uh, he gives them all kinds of excuses why he's not working on it but this is why he's not working on it because the notes that he had were just notes but he but he he got stuck he can't work it out and then he gave it to benioff and weiss and they did the best they could with what they had and they complete they did something with the ending that everybody hated the ending everybody hated the last season for sure in the last two seasons and this is what happens when intuition and powerful symbols and allegory and a powerful mythology falls apart in the in the final in the final act for various different reasons usually mostly the ego gets in the way the ego mind gets in the way uh another quick character that we should talk about because it was rather uh, remarkable um when we came across it and that character is uh this character melisandre or uh, the red woman now what's interesting about this character if you remember uh this character uses blood magic and 
what is kind of uh, remarkable is how the show uh, portrays uh, blood magic in a for the first few seasons in a very matter-of-fact upfront way and blood magic is a form of black magic and blood magic is what the mayans and the aztecs were performing when their uh civilizations were collapsing and the high priests had degenerated and their crops were failing and they were desperate to rejuvenate the soil because we're talking about cities of millions of people and they were completely paved cities not paved with concrete but paved with stone and we've been to tikal we've been to that city and what you see that's been excavated is less than 0.01% of the city. All the jungle, everything that you see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, just about 6 to six to 12 inches under the surface, is all stone. Every hill that you see in the jungle is another pyramid, is another building for literally hundreds of square miles. As most people don't realize this, when the jungle reclaimed Tikal, it reclaimed Tikal. The jungle is relentless and it grew over the nature of the jungle. It just grew over that whole area. But if you, but they, 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 they went, they showed us. You, when you go to Tikal, you can see this. You, you can take a shovel and start digging into anything, any mound that you see. There's trees growing out of it, whatever. You start digging in there and, and it's like this far in. You hit solid, solid stone. They just don't have the resources. They don't have the manpower uh, to do the excavation. But it's literally hundreds of square miles of city under there. And so hundreds of miles of, um, of city, you're talking about millions of people. And they had no artificial fertilizer or anything to work with. They had no crop rotation, any sort of industrial, modern sense of agriculture. So, and... And let's face it, they carved Tikal out of the jungle. The jungle a rainforest has notoriously terrible soil. There is no soil. We know this working with peapod life. It's it's all aeroponics. It's aeroponics. It's not even hydroponics. And so what you're working with is this matrix of roots and fibers and and so there's no real soil there. So it's terrible for growing crops to begin with. And there's no nutrient there. All the nutrient is all being used. It's an ecosystem. It's a high order rainforest ecosystem. You can't do agriculture on a large scale there. It just doesn't work. So the civilization was collapsing, but they were desperate. They were absolutely desperate. So they used blood magic. And that's what all those human sacrifices were for. Spill enough blood, enough blood goes back into the earth enough prana right enough life enough energy life force goes back into the earth maybe we can rejuvenate the crops maybe we can have another season that's blood magic on a massive scale on a scale of millions of you know people and trying to feed millions of people for another year 
blood magic is used around the world by black magicians uh, for various different things. And the, the fact that uh, Game of Thrones sort of reveals it in a uh, unapologetic way, but the scene that is most telling is the scene in which they burn the young girl alive. That's a horrific scene. And there's also the scene of, that reveals Melisandre's true nature, her true form. And that she that blood magic is all a facade. She's actually animating herself with it. The by the end of the series, she does some actions in an attempt to kind of redeem herself if you will um and it's questionable it's up to you to decide whether or not she does that or whether or not it's out of her out of character whether you think a black magician would actually do that and she sort of ends up sacrificing herself in the process and maybe it's you can call it a character arc a story arc someone who was evil or was doing blood magic or was just misguided or you know, whatever the case may be, she was making, she made a mistake. She was, and like, there's a line in the, in the movie where she says, well, she hears these whispers. She sees what she sees in the flame, but then she has to interpret it for herself. And, and it was her interpretation that was wrong. So there's a lot happening on Game of Thrones in a very nuts and bolts, rubber meets the road kind of way, kind of dealing with the dangers of magic. And dangers of power and blood magic and the terrible horrific consequences of abusing that power and that yes miracles are possible when you do blood magic so-called miracles but what's the cost what is the cost of that and the costs of that are explored in game of thrones to you can argue or agree or disagree on how effectively they're handled and maybe it's left ambiguous on purpose for you the reader to decide or you the viewer to decide is she ultimately a good character or an evil character the, this good and evil these are labels that the ego wants to apply does she redeem herself in the end this is these are questions that are open for debate but what's not open for debate is the horrors that are committed because of her counsel and through her power. It's unfortunate, however, that she's also, as the blood magician, one who resurrects people from the dead. In which case, you have another female character in Game of Thrones. We have Cersei's, who we identified as Cersei. Uh, and you have Daenerys, who is clearly Divine Mother Earth and is here to break the wheel 
She's here to destroy the Game of Thrones in microcosm, and she's here to destroy the world of Westeros as it's been in macrocosm. But then you have Melisandre, who's this uses blood magic. So she's a witch. She's a black magician. She's a black sorceress, and she's using blood magic. She does some horrific things. And they're mistakes, and she admits them to be mistakes. But then she turns around, the same character is able to perform miracles, which you which arguably, and she's, you know, she she raises Jon Snow from the dead. So is she another manifestation of the Divine Mother? Is she another? So we have three characters. In fact, then you have the other female characters in Game of Thrones. The most, uh, the most significant characters in Game of Thrones are almost exclusively all women. They play an enormously important role, pivotal role. We have Ariana Stark, for example, who's the kind of tomboyish adventurer who doesn't even want to be a lady. She doesn't. She doesn't want anything. She doesn't want to have to, to have anything to do with that typical feminine role. She's a kind of homage to Joan of Arc. She's a warrior. She wants to be a warrior, and that's the life of the warrior and the adventurer that she takes. Then there's Sansa Stark, who gets sold into sexual slavery, essentially being married off to Joffrey for the sake of peace between the North and the South. And then she goes through uh, a series of, of horrific engagements to kings and lords, and she even ends up as the wife of Ramses, Ramses Bolton, who is the uh, torturer of uh, Theon. And she ends up in the clutches of Littlefinger and... She ends up married to uh, uh, Tyrion Lannister, and her she represents the loss of innocence. She represents uh, the transformation and the journey from naivete to wisdom. Because in the end, Sansa Stark is one of the wisest characters in in all of Westeros. It's only because of her intervention that Jon Snow and the wildlings aren't completely wiped out on the battlefield by uh, the Boltons because she had the good sense to go get the Knights of the Vale, to go uh, appeal to Littlefinger and to get the Knights of the, the Vale who come in, the, the charging light brigade, brigade, and save the day and save Jon Snow and the wildlings from total, complete disaster. Um, and she is also the one who uncovers Littlefinger's schemings um in the end so then there's brienne of tarth brienne of tarth is the most true knight in all of westeros she's the uh she's this character here she's the blonde-haired uh giant of a woman who is the truest of all knights even though <clears throat> she doesn't bear that title it says right, yeah, it says right here, even if the title is denied to her. 
But then eventually Jamie Lannister makes her a knight. Again, another very strong female character. So the fate of Westeros is very much being determined, fated, if you will, by the feminine force. Men are really actors and they're playing out, they're enacting the will of, of the divine feminine in the song of ice and fire and the breaking of the wheel of this Game of Thrones, because it's really a multifaceted assault. It's being it's being undermined across the board, and it's it's being encroached upon by the outside, but it's also being eaten away from within. And all of these female characters, including Cersei's, Daenerys, Sansa, Ariana, Brienne of Tarth, and then there's um, uh, oh, what's her name? It's it, it's not Lily. It's um, gosh. It's not Lily. What's her name? Gilly. Uh, Gilly, who um, is a wildling and becomes essentially Sam's wife. Um, she represents that that innocence, but that that nature-born innocence, that the innocence of a of a, of a yeah, of a lamb, of an animal. And she brings that child into the world and, and Sam becomes enamored with it. And Sam is very much, in a way, he's an homage to Sam from Lord of the Rings. Um, this, this emphasis on the feminine playing itself out in the world and how many of the men are really just, puppets is not the right word. It's just too strong a word. But they are, they are the actors playing out these, these plans, these strategies, and, and so on. But in behind the scenes and overarching and underneath, there's this overwhelming sphere of feminine influence. This is another reason why Game of Thrones is so profoundly appropriate to the time that we're living in. Because we're we're observing the breaking of the wheel of the Game of Thrones in macrocosm as we speak. And all you need to do is spend some time on YouTube uh, watching um, a presentation by Peter Zane, for example, or others that are talking about the geopolitical realities of the world that we face. Um, population implosion in China the war in Ukraine and what's that, what that is doing to international energy supplies, the supplies of fertilizer for industrial agriculture around the world, uh, the, the geosecurity situation and how the United States is no longer able to 
patrol the oceans of the world, which means there is no superpower in the world anymore that can guarantee safe passage of cargo. And if no one can guarantee safe passage of cargo, of shipping, then globalization as we know it has come to an end. And we are so highly integrated globally, there are parts of the world that supply upwards of uh, 60, 70, 80, 90% of certain commodities and certain uh, products. So computer chips, for example, and so on and so forth. And so the disruption in these global supply lines by, for example, pirates, and piracy is a thing, and it will go on the rise. If there's no, if there are no, if there's no U.S. Navy with uh, naval ports around the world with destroyers patrolling the seas, protecting those shipping lanes, then pirates are going to be all over those ships and all over that cargo. And if that cargo doesn't reach its destination, well, guess what? And, you know, without cobalt out of Nigeria and Central Africa, you can forget about your electrical revolution, your the electrification of cars and all this kind of stuff and all this high-tech stuff that people are hoping for and waiting for and expecting that are going to, it's going to somehow going to revolutionize humanity. You can forget all that stuff. You can't build an electric car with cobalt. You can't build a smartphone without it. And it all comes out of Nigeria. And how do you think it gets to where it needs to go? And it has to go to places like in Taiwan and China. How do you think it gets there? It gets there on ships. But it's got to get from Africa to Asia. And if there are no military vessels patrolling those waters, protecting those waters, we already have the, the, uh, the piracy is already a huge problem off the coast of Africa. There was even a movie about it. That they called it Captain Phillips. It's all going away in the next decade. The Kali Yuga is here. The Kali Yuga is here. The old world order is over. It's just coughing up blood. And Game of Thrones was meant to be the mythological, allegorical uh, primer to help tune the consciousness to that fact and to tune the consciousness to the fact that the Game of Thrones must end inside each and every one of us. As Azil says, we are vessels and we may proceed with caution, but ultimately we cannot control fate to 100% what we may become vessels for. Let's read that again, see if we can understand exactly what you're trying to say. We are vessels and we may proceed with caution, but ultimately we cannot control fate to 100% of what we may become vessels for.
So as a vessel, vessel is very passive. Servant is better because servant is active. A servant has to act. And a servant gets to choose. A servant chooses who he serves. A vessel doesn't get to choose what gets poured into it. But a servant gets to choose his master. Now you can argue the ins and outs of that. And you can argue the, the, the real world realities of that. A slave doesn't get to choose their master. But a servant, in theory, can choose their master. A servant can walk away from a lord that they no longer they don't want to serve. So what it comes down to is, and you have 100% control over this, by the way. We all do. Do we serve our innermost being? Or do we serve the legion of egos inside of us? Which do we serve? Do we serve our innermost self or do we serve our I? We don't have one eye. We have a legion of eyes, many, many, many eyes. We have a game of thrones. So we have that question that Varys uh, embodies the eunuch and the whisperer. And he's, you know, they call him the spider. But he serves Westeros. And yes, there are times when he serves bad kings, bad lords. But how does he serve them? Sometimes he doesn't have a choice, right? He can't walk away from the council, right? His seat at the council, because then he'll lose all influence. And so he says, I've always served Westeros. I've always served the people. So if you serve your being, you serve the land, you serve the totality of your being. Or do you serve one of the particular houses? You pick your allegiance. You serve your ego. You serve the wheel, the game of thrones. That's entirely within your power. What you don't have power over is who is your Lord. Just as you don't, you so you get to choose your Lord, but you don't get to choose the nature of that Lord and the nature of the destiny that that Lord commands you. That's what you don't get to choose. You get to choose to be or not to be, to accept, to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by avoiding end them. That's your choice. That's your free will, to be or not to be. And that's choosing your being over your ego. But as as Azel says, as Azel says here, but you don't get to choose 100% what that what your destiny is going to be. 
to surrender to your Lord and Master means to surrender to your Lord and Master and to surrender to your Divine Mother. That means to surrender to the mission, the work, the destiny, which is their destiny, which is your true destiny. But the only reason why we have this servant master dynamic at all is because we're stuck in this false self and this false ego that sets that dichotomy up. The reality is, is that that true self is us. That's what it means to have a true self. That was, that's what it means to be a true self. We shouldn't want anything else other than our destiny. Because that's what we chose for ourselves, for this character that we are playing. That was our choice. That is our choice. That is our destiny. I shouldn't want anything else other than what my true self chose for this character that we are playing, that I am playing. But it feels like this, this separation. It feels like, oh, you know, I, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a slave now. Well, that's the ego talking. Because the ego doesn't want that destiny. The ego wants to be in control. The ego wants to say, I get to choose my own destiny. And I'm going to say what I'm going to do. And I'm going to choose this. And I'm going to choose that. And I'm, I'm, I, 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 I. It just so happens that all of that's an illusion and none of that's real. All of that is not being. All of that is the adversary. That is the mountain that we have to overcome. So, but ultimately we cannot control fate to 100%. No. We cannot control fate to 1%. We have 0% control over our fate. Until we awaken, until we self-realize. And then we realize that we have 100% because we chose that fate. The more awake we become, the more self-realized we become, the less and less of an I we are. And the more of the oneness of the we that we identify is not the right word, that we know ourselves to be, that, that we just, we are, we be, we are that destiny. And there is no, there is nothing that can fulfill us than 100% of that destiny. So there is no more question at that point. We don't get to choose 99%. We don't get to choose 80%, 70%. No, it's all or nothing. It really is. To be or not to be, that's what it is. Now, whether or not, to what degree, to what extent we can achieve or to what degree or extent the outcomes which flow from our destiny. We certainly don't have control over any of that, nor should we want to, nor should, nor do we, because that's attachment to outcomes. 
to be or not to be, that is the question. It's not a matter of, well, what's going to be the long-term effects of me fulfilling my destiny? Nobody knows that because free will comes into that. Because we do not get to dictate or demand or expect others to act a certain way or react a certain way or respond a certain way or to fulfill their destiny. All we can do is our part. All we can do is plant a seed. But it's not up to us to determine whether or not those seeds are going to germinate and sprout. That's not that's we don't have control over that because that's not our destiny anymore that's the individual destinies of the monads of the souls with whom we planted those seeds the hero in every hero's journey is our monad is our innermost being But specifically the human soul, because the monad is a trinity. It's a tri-unity of innermost being, consciousness, and human soul. The human soul must be created. That's awakening. That's to awaken and to self-realize means to become a master. Where the human soul and the innermost being are one in the purest sense. And the next step after self-realization is resurrection to become a resurrected master to become a resurrected master is to become a living embodiment of the Christ the first step is to become a Buddha the next step is to become a master and the next step is to become a Bodhisattva a resurrected master which is a living incarnation of the Logos where now you have the human soul, the innermost being, and the logos, all three combined and embodied in a physical vehicle, in a physical vessel. And then you can throw all concept of I out the window. There is a oneness there, but there's but that that I is not an is not an I, it's a we. It's a we. It's an us. But it's a collective, and therefore it can refer to itself as I. I am that I am, the holy name of God. But God is not an I. It is, but it isn't. And this is the problem with trying to understand and describe all this stuff with ego mind, because the ego mind just doesn't get it. How can it be and not be? How, how can you say it is and it isn't? It is an I, but it's not an I. And luckily, as above, so below. You are you are one physical body, right? You are a body. You are an I. You are a person. You are one. You are one human body, one hominid. Yes? It's undeniable. You know that there are more bacteria 
in your body that you have a symbiotic relationship with, you, there are more bacteria in your body than there are cells in your body. Those bacteria, each and every last one of them are an eye. Each and every last bacteria inside of you is an individual. It's an individuated, separate entity. It is its own being. Now, of course, it can cluster in colonies, has very short lifespans, multiplies very quickly. All that's irrelevant. The point is that there's, there's a huge multiplicity living in symbiotic relationship inside of you, with you, that constitutes your body. Without them, you would die. You would not exist. Period. But you're still one body. Trillions of individuals inside that body that are not that body. They are not cells. They do not, those bacteria do not possess your DNA. But they are part of you. And without them, you would die. You could not exist for very long. Then you consider all of your organs that are all separate. They all might have, they all have your DNA, but they all have separate functions. You remove any of the organ systems, poof, you're dead. Then consider the billions of the hundreds and hundreds of billions of cells making up those organs and your nervous system and your brain and your bones. Those are all individual, individuated microcosms. They all could contain your DNA, but they're all individuated and individual. And inside of them are literally hundreds and hundreds of these organelles that are little, this little factory, this incredible little mechanical factory that's going on inside each and every one of your cells of those hundreds and hundreds of billions of cells. This vast multiplicity. And all of those cells are functioning, doing their own thing. And inside all those organ organelles are just doing their own little thing. Like they're all little, little robots inside of a factory. They're doing their little tasks. And they're reacting and responding to, to stimuli and environment and things, and this happens, and that happens, this is how they react, and that's how they respond, and they're, they're duplicating DNA, they're creating RNA. All of this is happening way below your conscious awareness. You're not even aware of any of this. You're not aware of any of your cells. You, you cannot be, unless you spend a lot of time meditating, you cannot hone in on any one particular cell in your body. You can probably barely hone in on your kidneys or on your bladder or on your liver. It's easy to meditate on the heart. It's easy to meditate on the lungs, right? It's relatively easy to do that, but try feeling into your kidneys. Try feeling into your liver. Try becoming consciously aware of that. That is all part of you and if you do manage to feel into a single cell and use your consciousness to penetrate and visualize you can go deeper still you can go into 
the nucleus of that cell. You can go into the DNA inside of the nucleus of that cell. And all of those amino acids in a chain. And then you can penetrate into one of those amino acids, into the molecules. And then you can penetrate into the molecule, into the atoms. You can do all this with your consciousness and experience all of this. And then you will know how it is that a singularity, an I, a one, can exist consisting of an untold, innumerable multiplicity of beings. An innumerable multiplicity of individuals, individuated essences. And that's why we say a human being is a microcosmos. Because in macrocosmos, the planet is a being. It's a living thing. The planet is one living being. It has a monad. We are all of us. All of us are part of the body of this planet. And this whole exercise that we've done with our conscious imagination, penetrating into the nature of our one human body as a multiplicity of untold billions and trillions of individuated beings, now extrapolate outward and do the same conscious imagination, but in the reverse, beginning with your body and your body as a member of a commu- of a family, it's a member of a community, it's a member of a city, that's a member of a, uh, of a province, that's a member of a nation, that's a member of a race, a culture, a sex, it's a member of an ecosystem, and onward and onward and upward and upward until you realize what a small insignificant speck you are compared to the body of this planet and how many other billions just like you there are on this planet, how many untold hundreds and thousands of trillions of animals, plants, and minerals there are, all of which have individuated monads, all of which have individuated essences, individuated seeds of God inside of them. You see, with your conscious imagination, with your consciousness, you can grasp how something can be one and many at the same time. But the mind still has a problem with it. You say God is not an I. God is one, but not an I. The ego goes, no, 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 I, I, that, that, you know. But spend just a few minutes in meditation doing any of these exercises. And then you talk to an astronomer and look out into the universe and you realize how many hundreds of billions of planets there are in solar systems with stars, with suns, 
in our galaxy alone. And then there are billions of galaxies. As above, so below. It's all levels and levels and levels and levels and levels and patterns and patterns and patterns and patterns just repeating themselves at different scales in different ways with different natures expressing themselves. And that's on the physical level and so too on the spiritual level. That's all. And at this time, in this place that we call this planet, this humanity, uh, our game of thrones is at an end. And the divine feminine, Daenerys, has come with her three dragons. But first, this implosion needs to take place. And will we have, will we have that second wind? Will we have that, that renewal, that birth into something greater, that, that that last gasp before the plunge or that um, um, that lull on the deathbed of this humanity whereby this humanity will achieve new heights and give many more individuals an opportunity to awaken and self-realize before the final destruction comes, that remains to be seen. We're here to do our part, but it remains to be seen. We can only do what we can do. And at the moment, at least, um, there's lots of things happening and moving, and there's lots of things uh, taking place. But at the end of the day, um, we're still waiting. We're doing what we're doing here, but we're still waiting for the For our real work to begin, because at the end of the at the end of the day, this humanity is still not ready. It still doesn't know. It still doesn't realize yet the situation that it's in. And many will never realize it. Many will be in denial right up until the last. And there's no avoiding that. We can't avoid that. And that's why it's so difficult and so hard to watch the end of Game of Thrones and watch Daenerys Targaryen torching the Red Keep and torching King's Landing and watching all those so-called innocents dying because it seems so unjust, it seems so unfair. But death comes for us all and death comes for every humanity and there's nothing that we can do to avoid it. Winter is coming. There's a reason why that was so powerful it was on it was on the consciousness of everyone who watched the show it became this catchphrase just as it was on the consciousness of all the characters in the in the show winter is coming it became a meme on the internet winter is coming well winter is coming for this humanity winter is coming and by winter Using the vernacular Game of Thrones, we know that that means death is coming. Death is coming for us all. And that's true whether we're in the Kali Yuga or not. In in microcosm, death is coming for us all. Each and every one of us will die. That is a fact. 
It is an unavoidable, absolute fact. Do you know how many people simply do not believe that? Simply do not understand, do not comprehend that fact, and they do not live their lives with that fact as the foundation stone of their existence. Which brings us to a character which you may be surprised that we haven't mentioned until now. Tyrion Lannister, the dwarf, the imp. What's interesting is that when you look up the meaning of the name Tyrion. Tyrion means rock. Tyrion means rock. Now there is a number of esoteric there's, there's, there's some different esoteric significance to this. First of all, we know that Tyrion uh, is a bit of a horn dog. He likes to fornicate. And he's able to do it a lot. And he has a thing for whores. Maybe it's because of his stature and that's all he can get. But he's a very sexual being. The other thing that Tyrion likes to do is drink. And that's a very Dionysian uh, allusion to the Dionysian festival. But getting drunk and, and fornicating, these are the two cardinal vices, if you will. Um... And Tyrion embodies both of them. The elemental spirits of nature take different forms in the fourth dimension. The elemental spirits of the mineral kingdom are known as homunculi or homunculus. Homunculus. They are dwarves. They are pygmies, gnomes. That's, that's where that comes from. Those are the elemental spirits of the mineral kingdom. Tyrion is a dwarf. He's a pygmy. He's a gnome. He's an imp. So, of course, he's named Tyrion. And Tyrion means rock. That's on one level. On another level, Tyrion is a very sexual creature. He's a very sexual being. Rock... Petar, Peter, the stone upon which I will build my church, the cubic stone upon which rests the two pillars of the kingdom of heaven and earth. The two pillars, Jaquin and Boaz, and the tree of life sit and rest upon Yasad, which is the ninth sphere and the fourth dimension. Remember we were speaking earlier about Daenerys? 
and Storm, Daenerys Stormborn and her silver hair. And what is Stormborn but lightning, the electricity of the fourth dimension? Now we have Tyrion, a gnome, a pygmy of the fourth dimension, because that's where the elemental spirits of nature reside, in the fourth dimension. In the past, when humanity was able to see more, it was humanity was not as asleep as it is today. Many of the pagans in Europe were able to see into the fourth dimension and see into the elementals of nature. And what did they see? Fairies, gnomes, dwarves, pygmies, spirits, which are all to be found in the mythologies and the fairy tales and the folklore of Europe. Going, and you go all the way back into ancient times. And these are the jinn, the jinn of the, the Muslims and the Sufis. And they talk about jinn and there are good spirits and bad spirits or like, or like naughty spirits. Because in truth, the spirits, the elemental spirits of nature are more like children. And children misbehave. Children, children play. So we have the Midsummer Night's Dream from Shakespeare, for example. You know, and we have uh, Robin Goodfellow and him playing his his tricks and his games with the lovers in the forest, and and uh, and Oberon and Titania and that whole drama playing out in the forest. And now this is common knowledge back in medieval times and prior to ancient times. But to those who had the sight, to those who had the clairvoyance to see the elementals of nature, they would see dwarves and pygmies and fairies and so on and so forth. We've lost that capacity for the most part. So, but Tyrion then, being a, an homunculi, a gnome, a pygmy, relates to that, but specifically the rock and how that relates to Daenerys. And he becomes a counselor to Daenerys Stormborn. Now, sometimes not a wise counselor or you know, he he makes mistakes and so on and so forth. But regardless, he eventually is associated with the Divine Mother, the rock, the stone of sex, the sexual being. And Dionysus related to the uh, fertility festival and the transmutation, the transformation of grape juice into wine. That's like the uh, the allegory or the um, parable. So the parable. It's the Jesus at the wedding of Cana when Jesus turns water into wine. That transmutation, that transformation of the sexual force. So that is the rock, patar, sex, the transmutation of the sexual force, white tantra, the arcanum azf. All of that is in the cubic stone. All of that is in the rock. All of that is in Tyrion. Tyrion was one of the most beloved characters. Everyone loved Tyrion. And a lot of them despised what happened to him as a character later on in the series. But the point is, is our affinity for Tyrion, our love of that character is rooted in these deep esoteric 
symbolism related to his name and to his nature is his expression as as an embodiment of the sexual force as a rock as a gnome a pygmy an homunculus an elemental spirit of the mineral kingdom the foundation stone and in many ways he his actions and advice uh are the um the pivot on which teeters the whole kingdom and the whole unfoldment of the story he's a mover and shaker and he is despised by many he's an outcast of his own family so to speak uh for example uh tywin lannister his father uh, despises him And so Tyrion is also a character that many who walk the path can identify with because many who follow their innermost uh, father have to go against the wishes of their biological father. And they're born into families and they're born into situations where they're birth father their 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 biological father uh stands in opposition to what their heart what their soul what their destiny calls them to do and we are born into situations like that for a reason and there are expressions of this there's a quote someone can't remember who said it that said if you to to fulfill your destiny you must you must live as if your father was already dead was it Nietzsche who said that or Marcus Aurelius one of the Stoics we can't remember who said it but somebody said to succeed in life or to fulfill your destiny you must live as though your father was dead and the reason is a man cannot serve two masters an individual cannot serve two fathers how how do you do that how do you obey two different fathers one father says go out get a job get a career get married get your 2.5 kids produce grandchildren for me that i can be proud of your father in heaven has very different plans or at least for us for me so you know i started butting heads with my father at uh at the age of 16. 15 16 as most as many young men do but it was real butting of heads because i had a lot of opposition like many people do like many fathers like many people who face their fathers their fathers have very strong 
opinions and ideas and plans for their children. And if those children are following their heart, following their soul, following their higher self, those arguments get very heated and very explosive because you have the uh, irresistible force meets the unmovable object. And all of that, you see, is embodied in Tyrion, the rock, the immovable object facing the irresistible force of the Divine Mother. It's irresistible to Tyrion. And it's entirely in opposition to Tywin Lannister. And so Tyrion has no choice but to put two crossbow bolts in his father's body. Because we're talking about fantasy here, Tyrion demonstrates to live, one must live as though one's father is dead. Well, because we're talking about a fantasy world here, we're talking about mythology. That's the beauty of mythology. That's the beauty of fantasy and mythology is that we can, we can allegorize what needs to be allegorized, but we can also uh, embody or show or actualize that which we can only symbolize in our life, right? No one is saying you should go and kill your father. That's not what we're saying here. But to fulfill your destiny, you must live as though your father was dead. You must disregard the good opinions and beliefs of your parents and what your parents want for you. Because if that's in opposition to what your higher self knows you're here to do. So, again, understanding the power of mythology and the power of story and narrative to be able to embody and make literal that which we can only uh, experience figuratively in life. But you can make literal in a mythology. In the same way, that which you must experience literally in life, we can allegorize in mythology and express it that way to make it larger than life. Three dragons, giant ice wall, night king, death king, army as armies of the dead, you know, mother of dragons, the, the wheel, the game of thrones, right? It's, it's, it's all larger than life to be able to play out in this fantasy world, in this mythology. And that's Game of Thrones. And it's perhaps quite appropriate that we put Tyrion Lannister as the, uh, as the punctuation point. <laughs> because uh, uh, he, in many ways, he was, uh, even though Jon Snow is, you know, arguably a more important character in the, in the, uh, you know, we spent very little time on on Jon Snow, uh, on the bastard, because really, frankly, um, despite the fact that he there's a moment there's a point where he dies and is brought back to life, he's not, and he's a good character and this and that. And it's it's the treatment of his character is kind of all over the place. He's sort of really. The story sort of happens to him 
Um, he's very much kind of like a fish of the, out of water most of the time. But the one thing that is continuous with him is he has integrity. He has a, he's a good person. And his goodness shines through despite being a bastard. And the fact that it turns out in the end that he's a Targaryen and he's the rightful heir to the throne, all of that uh, somehow, you know, gets overshadowed. He doesn't want it. And that speaks a great deal. The fact that the most worthy of the throne is the one who doesn't want it. But where it falls down esoterically is that it doesn't embody the um, he does he it's it's not made clear exactly who he serves and so he doesn't want the throne but he serves what just the what's right just goodness it's a little bit it's a little bit muddied and in the end but so what does happen though is that he bows to his queen he bends the knee to his queen so he serves his divine mother so in that part but it wasn't it's not handled well it's not handled well because it's it's in the later seasons the the ego mind doesn't know how to handle this and doesn't know how to write the dialogue expressing this it just comes it just comes off the the wrong way and um, but Jon Snow, he does the right thing, and he's in a strange bastard, whatever. He's the rightful heir to the throne. Um, but that should be revealed by him doing the right thing. It should be earned as opposed to just happening to him. And um, and it could also have been that he and Daenerys uh, rule the kingdom together um, with, you know, with Bran as his hand, right? But he doesn't want it, right? He doesn't want to rule, but Daenerys wants to rule. So this, it, it all gets muddied at the end. See, this, so it's esoterically, it becomes very muddied at the end. Um, the it, it's that's why it all falls apart, and that's why so many people have so much animosity towards the series, because what started out as a very strong mythology, and even though people couldn't put their finger on it the way that we perhaps can express it, um, but they felt it deep down. They felt it, and when all of that kind of falls apart or gets mistreated or or misrepresented, or, you know, da Daenerys Stormer, the Divine Mother, ends up being this vindictive, power-hungry, mad, you know, whatnot. Like, that's not the Divine Mother. You've turned the Divine Mother into some horrific, horrible, terrible, vengeful, violent, for the sake of violent uh, uh, creature. Well, you know, that you have to kill in the end. Well, uh, nobody's going to, nobody's going to be able to stomach that. And so, but again, 
the individuals involved, they they were they they had intuitions, they have intuitions, they have visions, they have ideas come to them and and they're esoteric, they're right, they're truth. But then the ego mind gets in the way and starts interpreting that, tries making sense of that, and tries justifying and rationalizing and trying to come up with with reasons to make it work that 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 makes sense to the mind. Well, mythology just doesn't work that way. And 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 as we were pointing out, the ego mind is black or white, this or that. It it doesn't understand trinities. It doesn't understand triunes and triunities. And so a lot of these things, a lot of these these paradoxes and and contradictions, the ego mind can't make sense of them. And we are, uh, you know what? It would truly be. We would love to be able to get the ear of George R. R. Martin, for example, and then counsel him on 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 how to finish Winds of Winter, because we do have a strong intuition that this is why he's stuck, and this is why Game of Thrones sucked at the end. But most fans think that it fell fell to pieces because the the author, the messenger, who's responsible of bringing this mythology into the world, he he ran out of steam. He's got too old in a way um and somehow his his intuition uh is got overridden by by whatever and he's and he's at he's at loggerheads he's at he's you know he's he's locked in conflict and and now he's stuck and um which is a shame because you know as you said it's all there it just needs to it just needs a proper treatment benioff and weiss were not the right people in the final analysis in the final um to uh to 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 pull it all together or they might have been but you know other things got in the way so many people speculate that because benioff and weiss were offered a star wars trilogy that they began shifting their attention to that and they were just trying to rush and finish up game of thrones because they got bored with it they got sick with it they had been doing it for six years but they were on contract to finish to do eight seasons so at the end they were just bored with it they were sick of these characters they were sick of the story they had enough they wanted to wrap it up finish and get on to the next thing and it very much feels that way too that it's kind of rushed and so on but that's some of the more artistic things but it has a very significant impact on the overall uh narrative as a mythology so you see how in modern times mythology is not as simple as maybe as what it was in ancient times where you know homer wrote the iliad or the odyssey or you know wagner wrote the ring cycle and you had one individual and then you know a shorter period you know they didn't have uh eight seasons of long form storytelling on on uh, hbo right i mean this is like you know involving thousands of people not just hundreds of people but thousands of people in the production and and tens of millions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars um in production and all this sorts of stuff like our our mythologies of old were not created under those circumstances so you can see how all of that adds layers and layers and layers and layers of complication that is um is something that that frankly it's amazing that game of thrones accomplished what it accomplished and frankly, the only reason it got as far as it did is because 
they had the five books of uh, the Song of Ice and Fire already completed, and they had the notes for uh, <clears throat> for the sixth book, um, The Winds of Winter. Um, it's just it's you know, and maybe it's maybe George will never finish those last two books, and maybe that's why maybe the powers that be know that George will never finish those books. And so they cut their losses and they rolled the dice and they said, well, listen, let's do our best and let's, but let's get this mythology out there. Let's get it and, and, and reach as many people as we, we, we can. And, and HBO Game of Thrones was a cultural phenomenon. It really was. And it was every bit, uh, maybe not as big as Star Wars, but at the time it was, it was a big, it was a big deal. It was a big deal, especially among adults, right? The same adults who, you know, they, for whatever reason, Star Wars never clicked. Lord of the Rings never clicked. And frankly, um, did Game of Thrones really click? Uh, it did and it didn't. Let's put it that way. Um, does anybody have any other comments or questions? Um, we had some on-topic questions. We had some off-topic questions earlier. We're happy to take some more before we call it a day. Um, anyone? <laughs> Is anybody still out there? Is anybody still watching? Is anybody still listening? <laughs> All right. Um, if no one has any more comments or questions, uh, yeah, okay. Azaza says, yeah, he's still here, but no questions, though. Okay. Uh, Magabu says, we are here. If anybody has any more comments or questions, we'll give you a minute to say yes or, uh, or give us an indication that, that you have another comment or question, whatever, or give you, we'll give you a chance to type one. Um, but if not, then um, we want to say thank you for joining us again. Uh, we hope that we that you enjoyed this episode. <clears throat> um, as we said, this is some this is one that has been top of mind for us for several weeks because it's taken us that long to get through all eight seasons. Because in the meantime, our, our father fell ill and ended up in the hospital. And of course, those days, we, you know, watching Game of Thrones was not high on our priority list. Um, and with 10 episodes a season, and, you know, sometimes only getting one to two episodes in an evening, uh, it would take us, you know, a week just to get through. Or get, uh, it would take us a week to get through a couple seasons. So we were looking at, you know, a good two and a half, three weeks finish so for that whole period of time um many of these themes and symbols and so on were were top of mind and i'm sure there's more that we missed uh, we've only watched it once and i'm sure that there's more that we noticed while we were watching it but that we didn't talk about tonight because it's not top of mind because it's it is a lot to digest um eight seasons uh, 10 episodes each. That's 80 episodes. That's 80 hours. And some episodes are longer than an hour. So, but it's, but it's 80 hours of, 
this grand mythology. And for example, I mean, we didn't even talk about, um, um, you're welcome, Jennifer, as always, you're, you're, uh, you're welcome. Uh, we didn't talk about um, Arya and her sojourn with the faceless god. Oh, that's so very kind of you to say, Mugaboo. That's very, very kind of you to say. Um, we just hope that we have the ability to reach more people. That's all we care about. We don't, we don't care how people see us <laughs> necessarily or anything like that. Just our, our hope is that, that through the avenues available to us, through the vehicles available to us, we can reach more people and plant more seeds. That's, that's all that we can hope to do. But very kind, and thank you for saying um speaking of which something that we've been meaning to mention to all of you um that we could use some help uh one of the things that we could use some help with and this is only applies if you already do this or know somebody do, who, do, who does this if you watch these live streams after the fact if you're going to if you ever re-listen to any of these, if you, uh, or while you're listening live, or if you go back and re-listen at one, one and a half times speed, let's say, if you spent the time to do that anyway, if you jotted down some time codes with some topics or time codes of interesting things that you think would make for an interesting short video um it would be very helpful to us if uh if you sent those time codes to us because we don't have the time to go and re-listen to everything to all of our live streams and what's and also we don't necessarily know because it's all important to us we don't necessarily know what really matters to you what really grabbed you what really spoke to you we only everything speaks equally to us but we can't possibly know of the three hours or four hours that we spend here um, interacting or talking and sharing what we have to share we can't possibly know which nuggets or pieces were really impactful or really important or really meaningful to you or what you think would make a really good 10-minute, 5-minute, 15-minute clip. But if you're going to go and watch these uh, anyway, if you do that, and I don't mean every single one, just if and when you do that, if you would pay attention to that, and jot it down on a piece of paper, jot it down in an email, just because when you're re-watching, re that's the beauty of it, you can always pause and take a moment and just write down the time code and then send that to us in an email or send it to us on Facebook or whatever and say, this is the video, these are the time codes, and these are the topics in each time code that, that I found interesting. Um, then that would be useful to us because then what we can do then is go and cut that time code out and release it as a separate video on Facebook and YouTube as a short snippet 
of information and we might even go to the pro to the uh, trouble of making a PowerPoint presentation or, or a video of visualizations to go with it. So it's our narration, our voice in the background. And then over top, we have some visuals, you know, piecing it all together or whatever. It's just something to consider um, that would be very helpful to us because uh, making these videos are, is very time consuming. And we have a lot of material, obviously. We've shared a lot. And um, but as we said, it's 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 very difficult to be your own editor. It's very hard to be your own editor. Um, you know, we'd really appreciate any uh, any help along these lines. And I'll tell you why, because as soon as this video is done that we're working on and we're getting close to being done, which we'll be honest with you, um, the human condition in under 10 minutes. Um, we have an opportunity we have a lot of material and we have an opportunity to work with a publisher now uh it's it's self-publishing but it is what it is but the beauty is the beauty with that is we can we can submit material and have it published within eight to 12 days of submission and have it in over 100 online bookstores this is this is heads and shoulders above the capability that we had uh 15 years ago when we did our first book and now that we have you know literally you know tens of thousands of followers on facebook and uh we, you know our youtube channel is still but our youtube channel is still fledgling and it's fledgling because uh we don't do a lot of the short form videos um but that's you know that's going to hopefully change in the near future but but part of the reason is, is because those short form videos have to go hand in hand, how to connect hand in hand with these uh, books that we're going to be putting out. And um, once we have this video done and have the Atlas Project website renewed and everything sort of prepared, um, we're going to be submitting, uh, you know, books for publication. And, um, and after that, it's going to be a lot of work. Uh, just pumping out these shorter form videos. And if we have the ability to take the longer form videos and chop them up and extract from them meaningful, useful little short snippets, then that can be more easily shared and more easily digested. Because these live streams, let's face it, the re we have very few people uh, watching them. And um, because who's going to make the commitment, right? Two or three or four hours. Um, but if we can get like, condensed versions of it down and, you know, five minute, 10 minute, 15 minute, everybody does this, whether it's Joe Rogan or, or uh, Jordan Peterson, all of these different YouTube influencers and so on, they all do this, but they have help that they do this because it's impossible. It's very hard for an individual to edit themselves in this way. Um, so as Azul uh, says, uh, can take out some different points of interest for different attend attendees. Um, yeah, so whatever, just just you know, follow your instinct, follow your gut, uh, follow your intuition, I should say, and um, and you know whatever you can do, it would be helpful to us, um, because we have the platform, we have the means, we have the partner and the publishing partner to work with. Um, now it's just a matter of of uh, tapping on uh, tapping the resources 
and anyone who wants to uh, contribute in some way. Um, we're not asking for any monetary contribution, obviously. Uh, that's not the kind of contribution we're looking for. But uh, most, most people who are here doing this type of work, they have some kind of assistance on the technology side or on the content side. And, you know, because we're just one person. We have to write the books. We have to prepare the videos. We have to do right now all the animations and everything ourselves as well. So um, it's just, it's way too time consuming for us to go through, you know, three or four hour videos and do all that work for ourselves. So if you have the ability to contribute, then we would welcome that. Um, and uh, before we go, uh, we, we've mentioned that when it comes to Game of Thrones, we didn't even mention Arya. And Arya's, uh, Arya's uh, side journey and her side plot with the so-called faceless god or the many-faced god now the many-faced god is also a, a god of death and all of those different faces and every person he kills becomes another face that they can wear and this is a very interesting uh it's very hard it's very hard to know what to make of it but it's clearly related to the nature of divinity playing all of these different roles and how the many-faced god that god can appear to us in disguise this is a trope which is a very well-worn archetype in literature that um, and we see this in Hollywood movies as well, where representatives of God or God himself can appear in different guises. So angels, guardian angels appear, and they appear in different ways, and, and they appear in, with different characters and characterizations, and where they change their appearance. And it's even a trope that appears in Star Trek, The Next Generation. With the character of Q, who's a member of this thing called the Q Continuum. And he and, and he's a trickster. He's a trickster god, which is, again, a very old tradition of uh, Loki, right? From the, um, uh, from the Norse mythology. This idea of this many-faced god or this god that can take on all these guises and forms and whatever but in game of thrones the many-faced god is a god of death and the people who die become the faces of the many-faced god and to become a a um an unnamed one you must abandon all attachment to your identity and then you can wear these many faces but you become a harbinger of death now this on the surface as it is 
presented or represented in the in the story again george r, r. martin doesn't know what to do with it he t uh, aria ariana takes it to a certain level but then she turns away from it and maybe maybe it wasn't george r r martin who did who made this decision maybe it was benioff and weiss it's hard for me to know because i haven't read the books i haven't read the five books of uh, song of ice and fire that are completed so i don't know how far the story goes i understand or i've been told that it goes until season five the end of season five or or the beginning of season five and that winds of winter is reason or winds of winter is really five six seven and eight i don't know that for sure but that's what i've been told i'm not sure if i'm going to take the time to read all five books to find out i don't know if it's that important to me um i might if i get a chance to speak with george r r martin and counsel him on where he stands on winds of winter i don't think i'll be able to to counsel him uh, uh learnedly unless i read his first five books and understand where exactly he wants to take the rest of it or where he he feels he should but ariana walks away from the nameless one and walks away from the many-faced god and becomes ariana stark but takes all of the skills that she learned and takes and and but she abandons that path and uh and in the end she becomes this adventurer and goes off into the west i think it would have been more interesting and more impactful if she kept the path but the problem is either benioff and weiss or george r, r. martin someone made the decision that she has to walk away from the many-faced god and she has to walk away from being a nameless one why because it's a god of death and ariana is the one who kills the night king the king of death and how does that how does that how do you square those two things how do you how do you how do you make that contradiction work and that's why i think it's problematic the whole war of winterfell and the whole war of the undead and the whole wall and all that stuff i think that's why all of that is problematic because would have been what would have been really interesting is that if ariana becomes one of the nameless ones and a servant of the many-faced god and then she plays a more intricate intrigue oriented role in the unfoldment and the in the undermining of the game of thrones in prepping of the stage in order for the uh the mother of dragons and the night king to work together and and john snow to bring together ice and fire to truly bring together ice and fire because the night king is ice it's not john snow john snow is a targaryen so song of ice and fire it's not about bringing together daenerys and john snow john snow is a targaryen song of ice and fire is the north and the south it's the night king and daenerys and so ariana 
So here's what the faceless God or the many-faced God, why he's a God of death. And why the faces that are added are those of those who die. Because enlightenment is a process of psychological death. We die, the personality dies, the false self dies when we become a resurrected master. We are born again, and then we become a part of the many-faced God. We become one with the Logos when we are born again of the waters and the spirit. But to resurrect, you must die. That part wasn't treated wholly well, but the part of Ariana suffering and having her personality, her name wiped away through suffering, through effort, through discipline, through super efforts, in order to gain access to what? The knowledge and the skills and the abilities of the many-faced God. So both angles are being treated simultaneously in two different ways, with the characters that are being killed and the character who is dying psychologically of her own free will. It's the path. So there's, there's so many layers and aspects to, to the Game of Thrones from the esoteric perspective that's being, that's, 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 it saturates the story. It's just that how it was handled um, and what, it, what was done with it, it, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go where it needed to go, where it could have gone, where it should have gone, where it might have gone. And so the, the mythology, all of these excellent, amazing foundations are there. And then they built up to a certain level. And then, yeah, it's just, you know, I don't want to say it collapsed in on itself because it didn't, because the foundations and the pillars are still there. And you can see where it was going. But the execution, they, they ran out of steam. They ran out of interest. They ran out of money. They ran out of whatever. And they ran out of material. They ran out of books. So that's really, um, truly all we can say about it, I think, at this point. Um, at some point, we might take the time, longer period of time. We might watch it again. Or uh, it just might be, it might make more sense just to read the books. Um, and we might revisit this mythology again in the future, but we certainly, we will probably be referencing it many, many, many times because there is nothing better. There is absolutely nothing better to describe the game of King of the Hill going on inside of our psyche, inside of everybody's psyche, bar none. There is nobody who's immune from it. Everybody is suffering their own game of Thrones inside their own psychology. There's absolutely no better analogy, no better allegory. There's no simpler way to communicate to people kind of instantly, certainly here in the West, what they're suffering from and what the nature of their psychology is, the nature of esoteric psychology. It's the Game of Thrones. And 
Um, and that's a very powerful, and that's why story and allegory is so powerful precisely for that reason. Um, we don't have quite the same, uh, you know, we can't say the same thing about Lord of the Rings. You can't say everybody has a Lord of the Rings inside of them. You can say everybody has a Gollum inside of them and everybody has a ring of power inside of them and a Sauron. And a, it, it's, it's not the same as saying everybody has a Game of Thrones inside of them. But what is that? Well, all these different entities that are vying for the Iron Throne. All these different eyes, all these different egos that are vying to rule your kingdom, to rule you. And people know that. You say that to them, or you share, you share with them our little animated GIF or a little like, you know, two-minute video on the Game of Thrones happening inside of our psyche, and people just get it. It's just, okay, yeah, okay. All right, makes sense. So, okay. Uh, all right, so that's a half an hour <laughs> of us uh, <laughs> uh, saying goodbye and saying that uh, we're done. <laughs> Uh, so once again, we'll ask you uh, if you have any more questions or comments. Um, now would be the time to ask because we really will say goodbye now. But we'll give you a, a minute if you want to type those in. Um, yeah, and uh, like we said, we 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 hope that uh, in in the near future. Now we're of course also have to deal with the reality that um, we have a personal matter, um, that uh, personal situation that we're facing in our family that uh, uh, it's just, it's just the reality. It's just what happens, right? It's just how things go, but there's going to be a lot of nuts and bolts, uh, housekeeping things related to that. And how that transition uh, will take place, um, and you know, family members, and things like, you know, uh, estates, and and uh, when we say estate, we that's a, you know, just just the execution of a will, and so on and so forth. These are these are realities that we're going to be facing uh, at some point, and we just simply don't know if it's a matter of days or if it's a matter of weeks. It's simply a question of how long uh, our father holds on, right? And how long he, how, uh, nobody knows, right? Um, so sometime in the next, um, we imagine sometime before Christmas, but I mean, who knows? Who knows? But there's going to be some major changes happening in our life and, uh, and so there's going to be a disruption taking place. And some of that's going to create new opportunity, but it's also going to create new challenges. And um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see just <clears throat> where we where we're going to be in the near future. There is some uncertainty there. We're not worried. We're not afraid. We know that things will work out the way they need to. And we're, we know that, that our ability to do our work 
will not be it may be impeded in the short term but it will not be jeopardized in the long term you will only be better off in the long term um having said that um we have a lot of material that uh, that's the other thing that we wanted to mention is that if any of you know of any uh editors who would be willing to edit a book for us on very reasonable terms or on terms of participation if somebody's willing to do that uh to take a, a um a royalty on the back end uh, we don't know what what position we're going to be in financially to be able to pay and we don't know what people charge for these days for editing fees um it used to be on a word basis when we wrote our first book i know we paid on a per word basis and we got we felt we got a what we felt was a fairly reasonable deal um but that's another thing that we're going to be looking for is an editor that we can work with and someone who we trust and someone who uh we feel has some kind of affinity for the material um that that we can work with and we're going to put out some feelers as well into the you know into the gnostic community and maybe we'll reach out to glorian as well because certainly they've put out books and they they they've had it they have editors there or, or they've worked with editors so um but again we'll uh we'll have to see how that rolls out we're just sharing this with you because you're part of this community or, or part of the of our inner circle or we sort of feel that way <laughs> um and um and it's it's time for us to start reaching out and and offering uh all of you more opportunity to participate more more opportunity to get involved in this thing that we call the atlas project our life's work because we can't do it alone we're not we're not a one-man show we've been a one-man show for a very very long time um and it's time for us to uh open the door and invite others to um come and define their own level of participation if they if they want to have if they feel in their heart that they have a contribution to make if you don't then that's fine this is not there's no obligation this is not you know we're not charging anything here we're not putting any limits we 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 don't even pursue our patreon or anything like that we we, we tried that we started that we said you know what this just doesn't feel right that that we would have locked content behind a paywall that's not what we're about that's 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 just wrong for us that's not well, for what other people do that's their business but for us we can't be that way so we're not we're not trying to coerce anybody here and we're not trying to make this some kind of an exchange on, on that level this is an opportunity if you feel as though in your life there's something missing that you want to be a part of something greater and making a bigger difference in the world um and that that you maybe don't have that opportunity with the uh the life that you're presently living um perhaps perhaps uh we have uh, a vehicle that um that will afford you an opportunity to be a part of something that's here to truly truly do something um significant for for this suffering humanity all right so on that note 
um, thank you for joining us again. And um, we'll hope to see you again next week. All the best. Have a great week. And um, whoops, where is it? There is inferential peace.